All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. following program contains language that some listeners may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Questlove Supreme Archives. This is the Alan Weeds episode. I believe that Alan was definitely uh, in one of our first 10 episodes. Uh, the Team Supreme made a pilgrimage to Minnesota to talk to the revolution. And uh, we figured since Alan Leeds was there, we'd knock off two for one. And of course... It was an education. We did uh, sort of a sequel to that episode. We did it in two locations at Electric Lady Studios in New York with a special appearance by one Michael Eugene D'Angelo Archer, who uh, infamously gave us uh, the shortest response ever. It's more R&B. Anyway, this is the very classic educational Alan Leeds giving you the 411, the science of his life as a tour manager on Questlove Supreme Archives. Suprema, Suprema, roll call. Suprema, Suprema, roll call. Suprema, Suprema, roll call. Suprema, Suprema, roll call. Questlove in Uptown. Yeah. That's where I live. Yeah. Hang with Alan Leeds. Yeah. Five minutes, kid. Roll call. Suprema. Sup, sup, Suprema. Roll call. Suprema. Sup, sup, Suprema. Roll call. My name is Fonte. Yeah. I'm in Minnesota. Yeah. Quest Love Supreme. Yeah. We taking over. Roll call. Suprema. Sup, sup, Suprema. Roll call. Suprema. Sup, sup, Suprema. Roll call. My name is Steve. Yeah. And we in mini. Yeah. I got the sugars. Yeah. Even though I'm skinny. Roll call. <laughs> Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. I'm unpaid bill. Yeah. I can't complain. Yeah. The weather's right. Yeah. For purple rain. Roll call. Yeah. Suprema. Sup, 
a name. Yeah. I need to stay in my lane. Yeah. Cause I can't write rhymes. Yeah. And that's a real damn shame. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema. Roll call. My name's Laia. Yeah. So happy to see ya. Yeah. Don't tell Alan Leeds. Yeah. But sometimes I believe her. Roll call. Suprema. My name is yeah. Alan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to another episode of Questlove Supreme. How y'all doing? Good, man. Road trip. Yeah. Road, road trip, trip part two. This is amazing. Road trip. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, we are still on our road trip thing uh, up here in Uptown, Miniwood, uh, Minnesota. Um, we are very, extremely, extremely honored to have um, a guest that I know is personally tired of me bragging about his life and his achievements, um, but I, you know, no, but, his real life is life goals, though. It, yeah, it is, is. Is serious life goals. I mean, I, I'll say that it's it's <laughs> <laughs> he's he's tired of no. Well, it, it's just to me the the most interesting part of the car. I mean, people might see the car and see the flash, but I love engines. I love what to drives see, it. Yes, I love to see how it works. And this, this, I mean, name it. He, Alan Leeds has been there for peak James Brown. Not just like, oh, oh I remember James Brown, the Blues Brothers, or that, yeah. no. Mustache he, James. Like, right. Yeah, like even before Mustache. Yeah, like yeah. this is, you know, he handed him the poster that has the Sex Machine lyrics on it for James Brown, for peak prime prince, for Kiss. For Maxwell, for D'Angelo, for Chris Rock, for Raphael Sadiq, for me, for you. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Alan Leeds. Yeah. And I'm still waiting for my first record to come out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, Alan, like you, you, you know, I. I I know it makes people cringe whenever I try to like overdo it with the with the mushy accolades. Um, so I'll try and do less of that. But good. Um, and I know you hate that more than anything. But uh, only publicly. You at home? I play the tapes over and over. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is me. You're that. <laughs> well, I, you know. Well, I guess if if we are cut from the same cloth, is the fact that. You know the value in uh, what history will bring, or you you at least have the knack to know that this might be uh, a historical moment. So I'm one of those sentimental pack rats that never throws anything away, just in case it'll have historical value at the end. And I'll say, like being at your house, there's so many artifacts and so so much history in it, but. I kind of want to go back to the beginning. Uh, you were born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, correct? No, New York. You were born in New York? Yeah. Wow, all these New York surprises. Where were you born in New York? Jackson Heights, Queens. 
Wow. I did not. I thought I knew everything about your life. See? Wow. I didn't know. So what was your, what was your childhood like? Because the journey, what, what makes Alan Leeds very distinctive amongst uh, any human being that I've known is that your role in black entertainment's journey and the fact that you, I mean, a person's lucky to catch one maverick in their life. You've caught six of them in peak moments, not just like at the, at the, like you, from the beginning of an experiment to seeing it at its climax and in its historical note. So what was your entry into music period? Like, did you come from a musical family where... I came from a music business family, kind of indirectly. I had an uncle who played saxophone in the orchestra that backed Perry Como on, okay. on TV. I had another uncle who was program director of 1010 Winds in New York when they were the rock and roll station. 1010 Winds? He, he pretty much invented the top 40 format. And he had Alan Freed, Marie the K, all these legendary disc jockeys on his station. And I would go up there and I met these guys and get tons of free records. So as a kid, my, my childhood was really about baseball and records because, and I also had an aunt who worked for a publishing company. Amongst her clients was a young Quincy Jones. Okay. So, you know, I had these people in, in the extended family that were very much in the business. My mom and dad were not, but, but they were music fans. Um, so free records was just that was free your records interest. was the thing. I was getting. I was a very popular kid once we hit teenage, and everybody wanted records because I had them. Just like I would mean, you DJ sock hops and these things? No, no, I wasn't that interested in sharing them because usually I didn't like the records they liked. So what were your contemporaries listening to at the they time? They were listening to Elvis and Ricky Nelson and whatever was on Top Forty Radio. And what were you into? Huey Smith and the Clowns and the Coasters and Chuck Berry and Little Richard. So you were the 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 hip guy, the hip white guy that knew what was going on in juke joints and Yeah, well I mean I didn't know about juke joints yet. I just knew that in these boxes of records that my uncle would send me, there were always these you know, there were all the pop records that were on boring looking labels like Columbia and RCA and Capital and Decca. Right. And they just looked like you know, I already had an anti-establishment attitude at about age five. I don't know where it came from. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, these are some boring-ass labels. Um, but then there's this label that's got yellow and black stripes, and it's called Specialty Records. And that was Little Richard. Right. And Tutti Fruity did not sound like any of that other stuff. Um the first Little Richard record, I, this is actually a funny story. The, the first Little Richard record I heard was Long Tall Sally, which was his second hit single. Right. And I heard it on an Alan Freed radio show, and I went ballistic, like, what the hell is this? I got to have this record. Mm -hmm. And I remember telling my mother that I had to, had to, had to have an advance of my allowance so I could go to the store and buy this, this 45 that I'd heard on the radio. And she's like, what is it? Is it new Nat King Cole record or something? Davey like that? <laughs> like, ah, Crockett. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Now, mind you, I'm, let's see, 56, I'm nine years old. So she took me to the record store. She says, I've never seen you so enthusiastic about something. So she's dying to see what this is. So we bring the record home. I put it on and play it. And she just has this deer in the headlights look. 
that wasn't negative or positive. It was just, what the hell is this? And I remember saying to her, because she never let me forget it, Ma, isn't it pretty? Wow. Now, you know, I've heard that record a million times since, and I'm not sure the only thing that as an adult I can think that I would have thought was pretty was the melisma in this singing style. Because it's a, it's a screamer. I mean, it's, it's not like it's a ballad. Right. So to use the word pretty to describe Long Tall Sally by Little Richard is pretty much a stretch. But there was something well, what about in it that, that struck what, me. What's, yeah, I was going to say, what spoke to you that the battle of Davy Crockett or, you know... Well, I mean, I watched that, but Sinatra. the music was corny. And you knew even I at mean, nine... I mean, understand me. I liked that King Cole. Mm-hmm. I also had, and, you know, I got to be very careful about this because it's not politically correct, but... I had an obsession with black culture, and I have no idea where that came from. You know, I would watch it and watch the same TV that everybody else watched, which was very limited then. You know, you once once Dick Clark had American Bandstand, at least there was something different. But uh, you know, other than that, it was it was variety shows with very little R and B or rock and roll. And I enjoyed Nat King, but I always went to the black artists. I loved Louis Armstrong. I loved Count Basie. I loved Nat King Cole. Something Sinatra, I ignored. My father liked Sinatra. It was played in the house. It was like, yeah, that's okay, but I, was, I didn't pay any attention at all. Did it read as more authentic to you or just... I suppose. Like, were you into but, the blues but, records as well? Eventually, or was it- not yet, because I hadn't been exposed to it. Okay. But once I, once I started actually taking books out of the library to read about the history of black music and heard about people like Lightning Hopkins and Howlin' Wolf, then I, of course, I had to go check those out. But that, that came later. That came in my teens where I was beginning to actually understand that there's genres and there's tastes and there's, the music comes from somewhere and represents something. But as a little kid listening to nine years old, you don't know all that. It's, it's no, there's no cultural... Uh, uh, aspect to it, you just heard something and you either liked it or you didn't. So, no, I mean, I like white rock and roll too. Mm-hmm. I like Bill Haley and the Comets, but basically because I hadn't heard Joe Turner's original of those songs. Okay, you know, I see. That's what was on radio. So, did can I assume that the trickle down effect also affected your uh, little brother, Eric? Uh, we should know Eric is. Uh, a saxophone uh, god in his own right, uh, played with James Brown, Prince, of course, his own projects. So it is. are your music tastes now affecting him as well? Or Yeah, I think inevitably, um, not so much because it was about me and my taste, but just because when you have two brothers in a house and one's five years younger... Um, older brother is opening a lot of doors and whatever doors you know if I'd have been into country music he might have been attracted to that I think it was just circumstantial at first because this is what he heard me playing and it's older brother and when you're five and your brother's ten you look up to your older brother so when you that changes later (laughs) now in your teen years uh, because I know that you you did stints on on radio and and whatnot like what was your entry into this is the business. There's really two answers. The, the, the first time I knew I wanted to be in the I mean, I did used to DJ at home. I had a turntable and a, a really, really 
primitive walkie-talkie system and ran the cord across the hall to my brother's bedroom, and I would DJ for him and, you know, <laughs> actually talk shit and had my own top 40 list that I typed up every Friday from my imaginary radio station that nobody heard but my brother. Um, <laughs> so that was practice, but that was just because all I wanted to do when I got home from school was play these records. Somebody had to hear it, because so, it was pretty stupid talking to myself, so he became the sucker that was, he was the guinea pig audience, because you had to have one and you felt dumb. You know? so, but I went to the first, the first R&B show that I saw was in 1962, so I would have been 15 years old. What show was that? And it was Fats Domino. It was the Impressions. Curtis Mayfield, they were still the Impressions, the, the original Gypsy Woman that just come out. So it was very, very early in the Impressions. Right. Um, I don't honestly remember who else was on the show. I could look it up, but it doesn't matter. But I'll tell you what was on the show was five dancers called the Twisting Parkettes. And I later learned that there was a choreographer in New York, Lou Parks, a woman who was, became quite famous for choreographing um, popular dance in black music circles, and these were some of her protégés. So they were the Twisting Parkettes, and this is back in the era when the twist was a big deal. But as a 15-year-old, looking at these five sisters, and they had short little skirts, and there was nothing nasty about it at all. Compared to today, they were conservative. But at the time, that shit was hot. <laughs> 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 and I, I sat there. I don't remember anything about Fats Domino's set because I was sitting there daydreaming. How do you get on the bus? These girls ride a bus every night. And how do you get on that bus so you can hang with them? Bus driver. I thought a little bigger than that, but, you know. So, but, but, you know, there was an MC, and I said, maybe that's the ticket, because, you know, I don't sing, I don't play. Probably should have been a musician, but I never had the patience to learn an instrument. I took drums for two weeks, and the teacher got mad at me for tapping my foot to keep time. If he would have explained... How, how dare you right. use your feet to keep time? But I mean, you know, if, if, he had, if he had explained that you need independence to play hi-hats and bass drums and you, shouldn't, you don't want to have the habit of patting your foot, I, would, I think I would have understood that. But he didn't say a word except just slap my knee and tell me to stop. So the anti-authority in me lashed out and said, the hell with you. Plus, we were on practice pads. It was the second week. Yeah, no <laughs> like, one ever. And, hey, trust you know. me, I didn't test the drums till like three years into it. Yeah, yeah, and that was no fun. So, so my drumming career consisted of turning over to waste baskets at home and creating a set and playing longer records. And I had good time. <laughs> I, I was about to say, I never asked you, like, why didn't you actually choose music? Because no as virtuoso as your brother is, I would imagine that you could have also been a virtuoso musician i'm usually pretty humble but i probably would have been i probably could have played my ass off if i just stuck to something wow that's uh... um, but i never settled i never fell in love with an instrument drums were easy because it was physical it wasn't melodic didn't have to learn music you know chords and so on i was lazy 
really. I, I just didn't have the commitment or the self-discipline to put into learning how to play an instrument properly. And honestly, I think that's it. I was just, just lazy and lacked self-discipline. That's weird, because you're the most organized person I know. So. Now. <laughs> <laughs> we are here with uh, the great Alan Weeds um, here on Questlove Supreme. I guess your 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 foray into uh, what I knew you for, which is tour managing. Um, can I safely assume that starts with James Brown, or you know, did you, or is it that you jumped from DJing to promoting your own shows? And well, I did I did a little promoting because myself and another couple of younger DJs at the station. I mean, the station basically advertised and or promoted all the R and B shows that came through Richmond, which were a lot. At that time, there were three or four clubs that had shows every weekend. There were concert halls that had concerts on an average of once or twice a month. Mm -hmm. So it was a really busy scene. Anybody who played Washington and was headed south came through Richmond. So, you know, the Otis Reddings, the Sam Cooks, the Jackie Wilsons, the Drifters, you know, all the classic soul artists came through town at least two, three, and sometimes four times a year. Okay, so are you saying that it was just they happened to stop through, or was it like today things are planned? Like you know, no, they they were booked. These were legitimate businesses. There were clubs and promoters and concert promoters, and these were real shows. Okay, but but understand something too, because artists didn't tour back then; they worked, and they worked as many weeks out of the year as their success on records allowed them to to work because it wasn't like it wasn't huge money and they weren't playing arenas they were playing dance halls um i mean we did a james brown show in a, in a aluminum barn at the fairgrounds wow. in the winter time with no heat the band played the warm-up set with their coats on really um, and still had like three thousand people there go figure and when you say work do you mean like they work just like regular jobs like they had you know you say they didn't tour they worked what? No, I'm I'm using work as a, oh, as, oh, okay. as a you know metaphorically, but oh, okay. it, it, they didn't think of it as touring. Like even when I joined James in in '69, we didn't say, "Oh, hey, it's time to go on tour." It's like the show was on the road 51 weeks out of the year. Yeah, because tour insinuates that you're going to stop. You're going to stop exactly, <laughs> exactly. And like it, it's 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 uh, you know you got a new album, so you tour. Well, it wasn't about albums; it was about singles. Mm. And there was a new single every three months or so. And the, the idea was this is what you did for a living. You got your station wagon or a bus, and depending on the level of success you had, um, you you went all over the country. Whoever would hire you and pay you to play, you showed up and played. And hopefully you worked 52 weeks out of the year because that's how you supported yourself. Okay. Wow. So since James Brown's situation wasn't the average situation in R&B, right. I mean, I, I know that, Everyone has a level of the what they call the Chitlin circuit. Well, I guess back then the the main houses uh, were what the 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 Regal in Chicago. Uh, well, there there was a theater circuit in the major cities. There was the Howard in Washington, Regal in Chicago, the Uptown in Philly, Philly, Royal in Baltimore, and of course the Apollo in New York. And there were a couple of theaters in Detroit that did show several times a year. Like the State Theater, was that still the State in Philly? No, the State Theater in Detroit. Like Most, was that? It was usually the Fox. Oh, the, oh okay, okay, okay. Um, so 
And then in between, then you would go to the smaller markets, and it was sort of like and up in the air. Yeah, whoever Maybe would a have gym you. Or an uh, aluminum barn. Exactly. Or, okay, yeah. I see. I mean, you might play a tobacco warehouse. You might play a you know, fairgrounds arena of some kind, basketball arena, now, um, small theater, big club, dance halls. Well, okay, since James Brown's situation uh, is quite different, um, I would like you to, could you explain to us what the average conditions of a Chitlin circuit date would consist of? I mean, just in terms of, yeah, well, <laughs> right. yeah, well, I asked that because like, okay, so, you know, when we first started, there was such a thing as a rider, right. like put, I could put Captain Crunch cereal and have it right. every night. Right. I could have... Dr. Bonner's peppermint soup, like, you know, but obviously the, the, the glamour rider thing was obviously the thing that was started in the seventies and the eighties. But in the sixties, if you are, let's say you're Johnny Taylor and you have kind of a, a hot record that's, that's, that's cooking a little bit. I mean, what is the average scenario for you? Are you traveling by yourself? Do you have an entourage? Do you have your musicians with you? Or? It, it, it depends entirely on, the, I mean, there's no set rule. The idea was you get a hit record to get you out there. Your okay. first hit actually gets you out there because everybody wants to see who has a new hit on radio. And the first time out, you're probably making 500 bucks a night. This is like mid-60s. Is that, is that good? No, it couldn't be good. Okay, but but you know, you, no, you, I don't know. For the sixties level, like, was that okay? No, money? I mean, you might make less actually if you're a support act. You might make three hundred a night, and when you figure that you've got to pay for hotels and gas for the station wagon and whoever you've got on the road, you got to pay them. Okay. Um, no, even at ten bucks a night in the hotels, it still adds up. Okay. I mean, everything's relative. It's it's, um, but. The point being, once you had two or three hits, then the goal was, the first goal was to have a rhythm section of your own. So some of these artists would have to go to town to Pick town. Pick up bands. Yeah. Let, let, let's, take, let's, let's take an example. Let's say the Impressions, Curtis Mayfield's Impressions. Okay? They had a hit Gypsy Woman, and they toured behind that. Curtis played guitar, so they didn't need a guitarist. And they used whatever band was on the show. If it was a theater like the Apollo, there'd be a house band. If it was a club, it would be like if they were in, in Richmond, in my town, um, there'd be a local band that would be told to learn the impression songs. They'd come in in the afternoon, they'd do a quick, what you would call a sound check, they'd do a rehearsal, mm -hmm. and um, hope for the best. Now, side note, you actually knew the Winstons, correct? Uh, yeah. The, the, all right, the Winstons are... Amen, brother. Right? Amen, yep. brother. They did the infamous Straight Out of Compton break. Uh, but were they like the local band that would be there when? Well, here's 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 the story. There, the Winstons themselves were not. Um, but G.C. Coleman, Gregory Coleman, who was the drummer in the Winstons in the famous break, mm -hmm. um, he had a local band in Richmond. And that's how I knew him because we did gigs together all the time. Okay. And his his first wife was the female singer, and it was like a seven eight piece band with a horn section, and they would back other artists like 
back to the Impressions, for example, who'd come through town, mm -hmm. and they would back them, and they'd do a set of their own. They might play school dances. They might, they, you know, them too. They would do any gig that came their way. But they were basically a local band. Now, in G.C. Coleman's case, um, he was a good enough drummer that he got recognized, and somehow he ended up on the road with the Marvelettes as part of the Motown, Motortown review shows. Okay. And he was the Marvelettes' personal drummer. He went from there to Otis Redding. And he and several of the members of the Otis Redding band were laid off when Otis decided to tour with the Barcase. This was shortly before he died. Okay. And um, at that point, those guys who came out of Otis's band formed the Winstons. And they became a club band that was actually based in D.C. And their regular gig was as a house band at a discotheque in D.C. called Rands, R-A-N-D-S. Okay. And... Um, and then they got a deal. They cut Color Him Father. The Amen Break was the flip side, which was... Oh, that was a B-side. That was a B-side. They, they wow. actually... They actually... I left something out. They had actually toured, strangely enough, with the Impressions for several months as their band. Okay. Now, this is once the Impressions reached a certain point where they had more hits and the money got bigger, then they put together their own band. Because they everybody hated playing with these local bands because it was always raggedy. I mean, yeah, I was going to say, like, were they all of them? Was it just like someone comes with chord charts and says, "Here, read this," or you just no, knew usually their these hits? Guys or? didn't even read music. Most of these local bands, at least in the South, didn't even read music. Now, the house bands in the theaters up north did, and they uh, wanted charts. Okay. Like, you played the Apollo. If you didn't bring charts, you'd get your feelings hurt. But down south, in the in the clubs, nobody read music, so it was like learn their records. The band would just learn the records before the group came to town. So the impressions come to town. They do a little run through before the club opens and, um, and then they just wing it. And I mean, I've seen, I used to MC shows in these clubs and I remember the drifters who traveled with only a guitar player. They never had a band right. and they had huge hits, but they never had a band. It was just a, the vocalist and a guitar player. And the guitar player would just be literally calling out changes to the band as that in the middle of the gig. It was it was crazy. Wow. Now keep keep in mind that this was the peak of soul music, which was a singer's genre. Okay. So and and those guys really needed to sing because crowds wouldn't. You know, if 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 you really couldn't sing, um, you weren't going to last out there very long. You get your feelings hurt real quick. So. Most of the so people the, that uh, went to seeing, those clubs, if as long as the vocals were clear mm -hmm. and you could really feel the vocals and and the rhythm section kept time, the audiences were usually happy. But So you're you know, saying that they had Apollo mentality in other places than other than the Apollo as far as if your show wasn't tight or Yeah, I you mean know. You, you you know, you better come correct. But the point was correct. Wow, relative people had standards term. back in the day. What you, yeah, of course. Yeah, imagine that. Of course. <laughs> you suck, you suck. <laughs> but, you know, that didn't just just happen in recent years. I feel you. Um, and feel there you. were a couple of acts who had hit records that would come through town and really lay an egg because they just didn't have it. Mm. I wonder, what were the black crowds harder on people? Probably because the the, the harder money to see a show. Yeah. I th I think that, but also because black music in the '60s was really a singer's art, whereas particularly after the British invasion, it was about the band. 
and it was about the hairstyles and the British clothes the guys were wearing, and the girls would scream and didn't even hear what they were playing. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. So eventually, I guess, I mean, what was your first James Brown experience and what about that really called out to you as far as... I mean, did you? Was it a moment where it was like, "Oh, this is my destiny," or was it just like, "Oh, no, James I'd, Brown"? I'd fallen in love like everybody else with the first live at the Apollo album because it was just so totally apart from everything else. I mean, it was just so obvious. Like soul music is soul music. They were great, a ton of great artists. But once you heard that record, you're like, "Okay, this this is some other stuff. This is this is really the gold standard here." So, okay, to explain to our listeners, so, um. James Brown came out the box uh, with uh, Please, 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 which was uh, an instant hit. And then I guess he struggled for two years to come up with uh, a follow-up hit. And how many singles do you reckon? Like at least 15 or 16 before Try Me? Maybe not 15, but probably 9 or 10. Okay, so... A bunch. An amazing amount uh, of misses, which, you know, nowadays... I mean, he actually got dropped. And Try Me got him his deal back. Really? Yeah. He cut a demo of Try Me that uh, he played for Sid Nathan at King Records, who had, who had dropped him. And he said, you know, please, Mr. Nathan, listen to this. It's a hit. <laughs> Literally Try yeah. Me. Exactly. <laughs> please, please, please try me. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so once uh, 
I guess uh, maybe three or four years into his career, James Brown decides that his his audience needs to uh, it needs to feel what his live show, or at least the energy of what his live show is about, and then they'd be more open to him. So uh, enter James Brown live at the Apollo. Uh, volume one, which came out sixty two, sixty three. It was 63. recorded in October of sixty two. It came out early sixty three. So, what was, you know, I mean, I have my favorites, and obviously because I'm more closer to break beats and you know, like what my standards for James Brown, a certain type of funk. Of course, I don't have a a, a sentimental attachment to Volume One. I mean, I understand why it's effective. But, you know, my favorite is personally Volume 3. Uh, but what was it about that record that spoke to you and spoke to America? Because DJs would play this from beginning to end. like Yeah, they played it as like one song. Yeah, it, it really did. Um, I mean, first of all, it was it was the the dynamic was so apparent because he really if you listen to the album you realize it's one long medley okay um he had segues in between the songs oh never um, stop and never never stopped okay never never stopped which was totally different because every other act in those days they'd play a song it would end with a big chord they'd take a bow you know then introduce the next song okay but with james it was just non-stop action and you could just, not having seen him perform yet, you would just sit there and fantasize about what this must be like because it's just, it's crazy. And lost someone, and understand something too for James Brown, people of your generation. Um, when he cut that record in 62, he was already the king of that circuit. He was already setting house records at the Apollo and the Howard Theater and places like that. Mm-hmm. And But he hadn't crossed over yet. And most of white America had no clue who he was. But the majority of his records at that point were slow songs. They were what we call gospel, blues, R&B, soul, whatever tag you want to call it. But, you know, very church-influenced style of singing. Okay. And really straight out of the gospel quartets. And, but the, the energy and the passion is just unlike anything else that was on record at that point. Because, nobody, first of all, nobody but Ray Charles had made a live record. So you really, unless you went to the shows, you really had no concept of what those little 45s turned into with a, a full band and okay. an arrangement. Okay. And it was obvious that James, first of all, he had a killer band that was ridiculously well rehearsed and that alone set him apart from everybody else because there was nobody else in R&B except maybe uh, uh, Ray Charles who could afford that because the, the the economics of that circuit were such that even somebody like Jackie Wilson or Jerry Butler or uh, Otis Redding at the, at the beginnings of their careers well Jackie Wilson never had a band of his own wow. Otis, Otis okay. did but it wasn't a very good band um, well, you know, so 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 James's thing really was was very unique on that circuit. I mean, he came to do business. So when he came to Virginia, uh, I mean, how did you two first meet? Like, what was the 
Well, I, I went to a show, and this was long before I was on. Well, I shouldn't say long. A couple of years before, I ended up on the radio station. I went to one of his shows about, and this was also in '63, and it was uh, it was a concert in the theater. It wasn't a club show, and there was like a smattering of white kids, you know, that had discovered James Brown, and I'd say it's uh, you know it's what we call the landmark theater now. Then it was called the Mosque. I'm sure you played you played there with D'Angelo. Yeah. Um, holds 3,000 people. Maybe there were 100 white people there. So it was at least the, the live album had begun to attract some white fans. But he still wasn't on pop radio, so the average white kid didn't still didn't really have a clue who he was. Um, but, I mean, the show was everything I dreamt it would be, and I was just you know blown away like everybody else was. But a couple of years later, fast forward, I'm working for the radio station, James Brown's coming to town. The station is promoting the show, and I just begged the program director, let me go interview him at his hotel to hype the show. Because it was kind of traditional that if an act came to town early enough in the day, they would either come down to the radio station to do an interview. And the whole idea was not it was, it was twofold. It was to plug the current single mm-hmm. and encourage the DJs to continue playing their records. And it was to hype ticket sales for the show that night. Um a lot of the ticket sales for those shows were walk-up, unlike today where shows are pretty much sold out in advance. Um, in those days, <laughs> I was going to say, though, black shows are still, still walk-up. Walk up. Yeah. Yeah, it's not <laughs> like that. Because, <laughs> you know, I'll advance the show and be like, yeah, man, you only sold 12 tickets. We might have to right. cancel. I'm like, no, man, it's black people. And then, like, it sold out that night. Whew. You know, but. Yeah. No, that, that, that's, that's still a dynamic. But, I mean, back then it was just rule of thumb. It, it wasn't the exception. It was the rule. Um, so at any rate, um, but James was big enough that he wasn't going to come to the station. He might send Bobby Bird down to do an interview or, you know, one of the support acts or Maceo or somebody. But So he but, rarely came to the station just to? He used to. But okay. by the time I went to work at the station, he had kind of graduated past that. So the idea was. five sixty six. This is 65. So I'm like, let me take a tape recorder to his hotel. And um, that's what happened. And, you know, I met him. And we talked for about a half hour before we went went on tape. And for whatever reason, he took a liking to me. And I've always wondered why. I don't, I don't mean that from a humble sense. Um, but we stayed in touch. And every time after that, he would come through town, I would go backstage, hang out in the dressing room, and we would talk music. And, you know, I was, I was the typical little kid who had all kinds of questions. What's your next single? Where did you record it? Um, did you use the road band? Who's in the band now? Who's the lead? Who's the new lead trumpet? You know? And, oh, Amir. Okay, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah, exactly. 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 And, I and he would engage you. Totally. But after I went to work for him, I discovered he did that with any disc jockey who had prime time because it was like, so, you know, I mean, he made me feel like I was the only guy in the world he's talking to like this, right? I mean, we're talking business. I I actually turned the tape recorder on when we were just kicking it um, without him knowing it. And you hear us in the background conversing. And we're, we're talking about things like the Motown Review and what promoters Barry Gordy used. And he should have used a black promoter. And James is just going off about, you know, we're talking business. And I'm a little pimply-faced high school kid. It's like, 
I was just blown away. It's like I love this guy that he engaged you. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, and, I, I you know, know that he, he always think said, I'm going to be the next Dick Clark. It's like son, you're going to be big. You got the prime time. It's, it's, you know. Well, his yeah, his rule of thumb. I guess in one of his books, he said that you know he always made the well the intern or the or the, or the person who not Lewis on the totem pole, but pretty much he'd make them feel important because he figured that in about five to six to seven years that they will soon be the station manager. Exactly. Yeah, they'll be the music director picking the records one day. Ah, he started that concept because all of us just took that and went. <laughs> That's real, right? No, yeah. Like, I I was taught, that was the first thing. I was taught to do every college interview, every, and now. Sure. Every, every rinky-dink college interview ever done now ends with 10 years later, like, some CEO of some corporation that's like, you don't remember this, but in Brown University, you played our homecoming. You, you, you gave play, me my yeah. first interview, and like, you know, that's now I'm doing something else for them that's, you know, way big. So it's, it's, I, I see how that circle plays. So at, at what point did he take you serious enough to take over or at least start working for him? Did you start off as tour manager or? No. No, actually started doing publicity. What happened is that I used to chase the show around. I mean, anytime it was anywhere near where I was, 100 miles, 200 miles, I'd go to D.C. at the Howard Theater. I'd go to Norfolk, Virginia. I'd go to West Virginia. And, you know, just anytime the James Brown show was within radius, I was there. And really just totally make it a pest of myself. But I got to know his manager. I got to know his, his road manager. And not to mention made friends with Bobby Bird and some of the guys in the band. And, um, you know, for whatever reason, they let me hang. So fast forward to 1969, and I'm in college in Pittsburgh. Um, the little radio phase had ended thanks to the Vietnam War, trying to draft everybody who wasn't in college. So I decided I better get in college or I was going to Vietnam. So, <laughs> right. so yeah, career was abruptly halted in favor of a college career that – Lasted for about two years until he hired me. But what happened is when you ask him for a job, he just no. Said, actually, his manager called and said he's coming to Pittsburgh, and he's got issues with the program director of the black station there. So he needs a local watchdog for the promotion of the concert. Would you be willing to do it? And what would that entail? That entailed buying the advertisement, newspaper ads, radio ads, um, monitoring it to make sure the ads are played right. Um, you making, did your own custom ads too, putting, right? Yes, yeah, okay. yeah. That that was that's the way I knew they'd be the way I wanted them to be. I didn't really trust anybody to do them. Okay, and and it was part of the fun because I enjoyed doing it. Um, and you know, putting up posters. I mean, literally driving around and with a trunk full of big window card posters and with a staple gun, putting them up on telephone poles all over town, putting them in barbershop windows. And you, know, you were the street all, team. You were the bad yeah, boy was, street team. Exactly. It was, it was the old school version of a street team. And suffice it to say, the show sold out. But what really got him was I showed him a bunch of newspaper stories that the local paper had done, um, the local daily paper. And at that point, daily papers didn't pay a lot of attention to black shows seldom reviewed them and very seldom wrote them up in advance. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't tell James was that the entertainment editor of the paper happened to be a friend of my dad's. Oh, okay. 
So I had the the the, the white privilege paid off, and I got <laughs> I got um, you know, so I got a bunch of, of stories in the paper, and he was like blown out. He's like. You're showing an initiative. You got this. Yeah, it's exactly. So I showed it to him in the dressing room after the show. And he's all geek because the show is sold out. And we were in the Civic Arena. That's like 13,000 people. So it was, a, you know, it was, a, it was a real deal. And he was like, well, Alan, you did this here. Can you do this everywhere? And of course, I said yes. And I had, you know, no one, my dad doesn't know anybody else in any other city. <laughs> right, right. I'm not going to tell him that. You know, so that was the gig. I was hired to, to come to Cincinnati where King Records was, and James's office space was within King Records. And I quit school, drove to Cincinnati, and started my job as publicity director. So was it a learning curve for you? Totally. Totally. I was just a kid. I you weren't old enough to drink yet, right? Like you're Without the aid of, I mean, of course, technology makes us all lazy or could make us all publicists in this room right now with our with our phones and our sure. computers. But, I mean, what resources did you have to even know, uh, you know, to get uh, coverage in the Times or... There was a marketing book that listed all the country's newspapers. Okay. And I got a hold of that. And once I got to Cincinnati, they just threw an itinerary in my in my lap and said, this is where the show's going, do your thing. You got it. And there was really nobody to supervise. So it was kind of like, I can invent this and, you know, do whatever. Because nobody had done it for him before in-house. And um, So you were his first publicist? Pretty much. I mean, he had a few independent people that would plant stuff in the, the Washington Afro-American in the Amsterdam News and stuff like that. But in terms of, like, calling the dailies in major cities, no. Um and that's what I did. I just cold called the newspapers in every town where the show was going and would ask for the entertainment editor of the paper. And they weren't used to getting calls like this because nobody did it. Now, I didn't know that. I'm mm -hmm. thinking everybody must do this. Okay. But really, they didn't. So at, at what point do you stop doing – or did you stop doing publicity or were you doing – because I know in the James Brown organization, people do double duties. After about a month when I didn't get paid. <laughs> then, this, this, see what i also didn't understand in the james brown organization first of all i'd always called him james until i went to work for him then it was made very clear now it's mr brown the, oh so when you were friends with him you were allowed to call him james yeah i was a kid i didn't even know any better okay and i was also a disc jockey so i could have called him anything he was going to be cool with it because he wanted his records played right but now i'm working for him now, the, the, it was reciprocal. I mean, he called me Mr. Leeds. Everybody in the organization was Mr. or Mrs. or Miss, whatever the case may be. But what I didn't know was that he had gone to the president of King Records and told him that he should pay me. I brought this kid in. He's a great publicist. You pay him. Then he uh, went off on the road. Well, the guy, Hal Neely, was the president of King Records. Mm -hmm. He didn't know who I was. He'd okay. never met me, nor could he care less. So long and short of it is I didn't get paid. So after about the third week, I'm like, well, you know, the first week, the office manager's telling me, well, it's, it's just the payroll's got to catch up because the pay would come from the road. Every Sunday, the road manager would wire money to the office to pay the office staff. And there were like, you know, a couple of clerical people and a receptionist. And, so there was and, a home office staff and yes, a road staff. And okay. the guys who booked the shows. Okay. Who literally, because James 
um, he he booked his own shows. He had guys on his payroll who would call the buildings and call promoters and book the shows instead of using an agent. Oh. It was all in-house. Okay. So I'm watching these guys do this because I'm sitting at a desk in the same office and I'm just paying attention to what they're doing. One of them got fired and... Um, I mean, I left out the point where after after I didn't get paid, I actually left for about a month and a half. Okay. Brown was on tour in California. I couldn't get him on the phone. And the guy at King Records said, hey, sorry, kid, but it just didn't work out, you know, kind of a thing. So I was mad. And, you know, the, wow. my friends at school in Pittsburgh had thrown me a going away party, you know, big shot leads. <laughs> He's going to work for James Brown. And then you're back home. I then. could not go home. So, oh, you so, couldn't even no, come back I, home? I wasn't going home. Okay. No, that's, yeah, that's, that's tragic. And I wasn't, I've never been a person who wants to be tragic. So I, I drove to New York and I knew a guy who was cool in the gang's um, road manager. Okay. And he hooked me up with Gene Red Jr. I'd met his dad. Okay. And he hooked me up with Gene Red Jr. Cool and the gang were just breaking. Their first single was just hitting. So I actually got a gig with them for about a month. Um, but that was also no salary. Damn. That was like, you get a piece of the gigs you book. Um, and most of the gigs I was booking were DJ gigs up and down the East Coast. And DJs... Didn't yeah, what always I, pay you. Yeah, I was so, gonna say what I know. learned uh was that it was a whole other hustle. That black acts were kind of at the mercy of the, the, the radio stations totally. that would throw these shows. Yeah. So no one could actually make a living. It was tough. You know, as a musician until until you had several hits and could really sell tickets on your own. So afterwards you you just you just gave up and came back to James. Well, what happened is one of the guys who was booking the tour got fired. Okay. And the guy that was still there um, had stayed in touch with me. And he convinced me that James would rehire me. And I'm like, rehire me? I never got paid. <laughs> right, <laughs> I, right. I might have worked, but I wasn't so hired. So as far as James Brown's you concerned, know. you're still there oh, doing pissed. something. And he didn't know that you were going oh or? no he knew i was going oh he just he knew i was going he was just and... like yeah nice kid but didn't work out you know wow. but the long and short of it is, is is james told this fellow's name was buddy nolan and buddy called and he said mr brown said that if you could be in rochester new york tonight you got a job and he'll break you in as the tour director assistant tour director and so on and you'll help book the dates and promote the dates. So it's no more publicity. Now it's like we're, you know, promoting the shows. Um, and I was in New York with very little money in my pocket, scraped enough together, bought a bus ticket, went to Port Authority, caught a bus to Rochester, showed up at the gig right as he was coming off stage, got backstage, shook hands, said, welcome back, son, said something patronizing. And, <laughs> you know... <laughs> And an hour later, I was with him on his Learjet flying to Cincinnati. So, you know, I went from a Greyhound at the Port Authority with no money in my pocket to a, a job that actually paid me in, in a seat on the Learjet. So, not bad. It was a good day. That is, yeah, that, that isn't bad at all. Can you, can you tell the story of, okay, I wanted to give her an example of the time when you assumed that James Brown was going to be sick and cancel a show. <laughs> yeah, that was not one of my better days. Much to your, much to your chagrin. Yeah, he was, um, 
we had a he was he was what he would do because he had a Learjet, he could fly in and out of one nighters in B markets. Mm-hmm. So he might base himself in New York, for example, if he had gigs, let's say Fridays in Boston and Saturdays in Providence and Sundays in Hartford. He would base himself out of a favorite hotel in New York and just fly in and out of these places and, right. you know, be back in his hotel in New York by one in the morning. Right. So he was staying at the Americana, now the Sheraton on 7th Avenue. I was home in Cincinnati and we had a gig in Providence. And Bobby Bird, who traveled with him, was a you know, quasi-leader of the band at the time, and traveled with James, was in New York with him, and he called me in the morning. I forget if it was he or Danny Ray, the MC, but one of them called me and said, Mr. Brown's really sick. The doctor's here. Mr. Brown's got the flu. He's got a fever of 104. He can't hold any food down. He can't drink water. He's sweating up a storm. He tried to get up and go to the bathroom, and he felt faint and couldn't even make it. And, he's, and I'm like, so are you telling me to cancel the show? Did he say cancel the show? Well, he didn't say anything, Mr. Leeds. He's out cold. But, you know, he's just telling you the man's very sick. So I'm in this situation of like, okay, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Um, on one hand, it kicks in right away that the sooner you cancel the show, you cut your losses because the longer you wait, the more expensive the cancellation is going to be because you've got all the labor costs in the building. If you can stop it at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you don't have to pay the ushers, you don't have to pay the police, you don't have to pay. There's a lot of people you don't have to pay um, that you would have to pay if you cancel at 7 o'clock at night after they've all showed up for work. Mm -hmm. So that's on my mind. Um, But by the same token, I know James Brown is not very seldom cancels a show and was the kind of guy who just kind of didn't believe in sick. He thought sickness was weakness. I mean, I actually got laid off for three weeks once because I got sick and couldn't come to work for a few days. Like, well, (laughs) if if Mr. Leeds is too sick to come to work, I'm too sick to pay him. You know, it's like that. It's, it's, it's like, he just thinks you're supposed to will. So I was very reluctant to cancel the show, but, you know, they're telling me the guy's on his deathbed. So, I, you know. Okay. So three or four calls back and forth. Every hour I'm calling. How is he? How is he? Oh, he's, 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 he ain't going nowhere, Miss Leeds. He's really sick. I'm like, okay. So now, mind you, this is before cell phones and pagers and all of this. And it's mm-hmm. a Sunday. So now I have to call the radio station that's promoting the show. I have to find the road manager, the band. I have to talk to the venue director. And most of these are switchboards that are closed on weekends. Um, So it wasn't easy getting hold of people. But after a couple of hours of going roundabout, I managed to get hold of everybody and officially canceled the show. So after all that was done, I called the hotel in New York back to see how he was doing because we had a show the next day somewhere. And his wife, Dee Dee, answered the phone in his suite. And I said, oh, Miss D, I'm so glad you're there with him. Is, is he feeling any better? What's up? What's up? What's up? She said, I wish I knew. And I'm like, huh? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? Because she had just gotten there. She had flown up from Georgia because her husband's sick, right? Right. And she said, by the time I got here, he'd already left for the gig in Providence. Oh, uh, no. Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. So you canceled so everything. Now and- I got to... Now, you want to talk about feeling like a fool? Call all these people back and say, "Oh, by the way, the show I canceled two hours ago—it's back on." <laughs> oh. 
Go back on the radio and tell all those people you told to get refunds tomorrow that, oh, by the way, forget what I told you to. You know, I've blown the credit of all the radio stations, you know, and and I'm sure I've blown my job. I'm just, I know it's it's history, right? Right. So he, obviously he gets there and... um I'm sure we took a hit. I can't remember the exact numbers. Half, half empty. Yeah, like a half a house, right? So, of course, I get up. I get. I told my girlfriend this Was phone, he told yet what happened? I'm sure somebody told him. He had, you know. Okay. Of course. I mean, the, 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 the band hadn't gotten off the bus. Right. You know, they hadn't even expected to set up. They were getting ready to turn around and go to the next town. So... I told my girlfriend, I said, about 10.30 tonight, this phone's going to ring, and it's going to be real ugly. Mm. <laughs> mm. And and it was. Suffice it to say, it really was. Miss Leeds? 10.30, he calls you. Yeah. Quarter 11. But as soon as he got off stage, he found a phone okay. and called me. Son, I know you're worried about me. I love you for that. And then his voice just got higher and faster and higher and faster <laughs> until he was shrieking. And the thing of it was, Bobby Bird had a little hit record then called I Need Help. Right. And he said, why in the world are you going to take Bobby Bird's word? You know he needs help. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you never cancel a show unless I tell you. And he's like, I got to be up here sick and work to a half a house. Oh, God. You know, so, yeah, things happen. Um, you know, it was not one of my better days, but... Um, but you still kept you cool. Um, no. Oh. No. <laughs> Did he fire you? <laughs> no, actually, he didn't. I was astounded. He didn't. Um, I mean, how many times do you reckon you've gotten... Was was getting fired and laid off always, like, a thing with him? Like, was it a running... Not a running joke, but... I got fired twice, which was not a lot. In right. that camp. I mean, there were some guys. I mean, he, he's like anybody, in, in any kind of self-made man who runs his own business. He has a very, very keen knack of reading people and knowing how far to go. With every, He knows who will take certain things and who won't. And, you know, the guys that are vulnerable, they get fired once a week. And okay. it was usually right before payday, you know? <laughs> no, Mr. Brown. So when, when did you leave the organization? What, what year? Uh, finally, 74. In so you were there for the mustache period? The big, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give the listeners some context for I the mustache. Mean, you know, we reference that a like, lot, but I don't think I, they I know. I understand exactly. that this is okay. a generational thing because it's, it's like I, I didn't realize until I went to work for Prince – how, because James had lasted so long and gone through so many metamorphoses artistically, that every generation has their own James Brown. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like you said, your favorite Apollo album is three. Mm-hmm. And mine is probably two. But, you know, it, it depends how old you are and right. what, what your personal taste and so on. But, but, you know, very few artists have that many phases that are so distinctly different. Um, but... When you're that close, you don't think of it in. I think of it in terms of the records, but you know when you say the when when you guys first started talking to me about the mustache period, I was like, huh? I had to go back and look at pictures to see when he wore a mustache because I'm not, I'm not like clocking his mustache. You know? Right? Did the music change when the mustache right, came? Right. Right. Exactly. right. Well, I, I would call that the payback era because that was like the big comeback record and arguably his last great record. 
So were you? Did you go to the the, the Zaire? Were no. you there for the Muhammad Ali? No, no. Unfortunately, you left by that point. I don't remember if I had left, but he wouldn't have took me anyway because. So you, um, when you tour managed, you were always in the home base in Cincinnati. No, no, it was back and forth. What would happen is we'd work in the office Monday through Thursday. And on Friday, one, if not both of us, meaning the guys who were booking the shows, would fly out and join the tour Okay. for the weekend. And usually it was just one of us we'd take turns. That's why I was home when he was in Providence and sick in New York. It was my weekend to be home. But, um, but I wasn't a road manager in the sense that I was on the bus constantly. Okay. So it was very much back and forth. I mean, it was it would never never two weeks went by where I didn't see the show somewhere. So what happens after 74? Now, I know that your period with Prince was you started in uh 82, 83. You know, well, the last stages of 19. So you came in 83. 83, early 83. So what were those 10 years what did you do in the, in between those ten years? Like what what other acts or? Well, ac- actually, I got married and had a kid, which kept me at home for a while. And then I was I was actually promoting shows, um, putting little R and B at a at a backer and a partner, and we were putting little packages together and taking a tour like the Shy Lights and the Stylistics and the Detroit Emeralds. Wow. Take three or four bands, put them together, and and book a four day run down south somewhere. Maybe play Charlotte, Raleigh, mm-hmm. Richmond. You know. That kind of a thing. Now, had touring conditions changed by the mid seventies than it was in the in the sixties? They were starting to. They were starting to. Um, it had dramatically changed in the pop world. It was a little bit ahead of the R and B world, but um, um, it 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 wasn't so much that the business changed as much as the culture changed. I mean, just the, the face of America was changing. The lifestyles, the living conditions, everything was changing. Um, at, at least on the surface, it things weren't as as overtly segregated. Meaning that well, look, look, here, here, here's an example. Back in the '60s. If you're going to play in New York, you play at the Apollo Theater. I mean, you could count on one hand the black artist who could who could do enough business to play the Garden. But you would play the Apollo and do four four shows a day, five on weekends. So if you played the Apollo for a week, and the typical booking was you opened the show opened on Friday, one o'clock in the afternoon, the first show on so a first Friday. show is at one p.m. Yep, and the second show is like four, seven, and ten. And how long are the shows? How long is each show? Two hours. Good God! But inside of these shows were comedians. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was. It was. It was. So it's not just you singing for two hours straight. It's no, not, it was kind of no, because there would be support acts. Okay, and the star might do fifty minutes, hour, depending on who. The I mean, star did the was. audience feel satisfied that okay, totally? Because that's what they were used to. They didn't know anything. I'm just different. used to, you know, the lead person doing a two-hour show. Yeah, but nobody did that then. Oh, okay. Nobody did that. There's very few people doing that now. Not till Prince. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Nobody's giving two-hour shows now. Like that's very rare. No, I mean you. We we would we would tour and have say the stylistics as a support act. After they, we're talking about stylistics when they were on maybe their third or fourth hit single. Oh, like rock rock and roll and, baby. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and, okay. and, no, the, the, the hits. Um, but the, the first hits. 
Right. And well, I mean, like the round two album, and you made exactly. me feel brand new. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Nice exactly. And they'd get twenty minutes. Twenty minutes. Yeah. They ain't got but three jams. What they gonna do? Exactly. In my right. research, they no, would do some right. cover would, songs and yeah. But okay. this, that's okay. what they did after they ran out of their hits. <laughs> Everybody did Alfie. <laughs> you know. Yeah, you're right. Wow. <laughs> Delphonics did, did Alfie. Everyone did, did Alfie. Test. Yeah. Yeah. They, they do Alfie. I mean, that's a very 70s thing, but but it, it you know, nobody expected them to do more. So was Kiss your first foray into the rock world? Yeah. Really the only one. Now, why why did they seek you out? They didn't. Oh, you... I just believe it or not, it, it, this is... The only act I ever chased was James Brown. Oh. Every everything else came just by being in the right place at the right time. It was just God looks out for fools or something. Mm, but, I hope so. Um, <laughs> the only show I really chased was James Brown, but I had been off the road for several years. Okay, and was looking to get back in it and paranoid because the business had changed. This is now 1981. So after they took the makeup off. No, they was it was actually the, the Creatures of the Night was the album, which okay. didn't sell, and it was their last tour with makeup before it came off. Were they still playing so stadiums? Was, or did they, they come were, down they to play, theaters? They were playing arenas but sea markets and half filling them. It was really a low Kalamazoo, F. Michigan. Exactly. Yeah. I played high towns. school stadiums. Pretty much. Okay. Pretty much. But they always had big productions still. Like. It was it was a big show. Okay. Yeah. They had to satisfy their fans, and they hoped to recover. What was that, what was that experience like? Loud. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, I, I can honestly say, and it should be a shame to say this, but I can honestly say I did not know one of their songs. <laughs> Wait, you weren't? You didn't know like I was made for loving you? Or? I didn't listen to that mess. I knew Beth. it. I knew it. Christine, sixteen. No clue. <laughs> I loved Kiss, man. No, James Brown had gotten in my head, man. If it wasn't funky or if it wasn't jazz, yes, I was not I listening. I mean, but the Dynasty album, they was trying to get a little funk in that joint. Uh, compared to the James. operative word is trying. Right? I, I get it. Tell him, Alec. You know. I mean, I, you know, I was an impressive seven-year-old kid at the time, so, you no, know. No, I get it. Was... If I was seven, I'd have probably been impressed, too. I don't know that I bought their records, but not impressed enough to buy the Look, records. I'm just saying that I'm not, I wasn't a Kiss fanatic, but I I mean, I grew up in a household in which, you know, you, you develop your musical taste and your formative years (laughs) from the other adults in the house. Now you're going to blame it on your parents. (laughs) But I'm your sister. I'm I'm just saying, Dawn. She was in the Kiss? Well, no, I'm just saying, Dawn, the, the particular high school so you're saying my mother turned me on to James Brown? Oh, man. I'm just saying. <laughs> the whole gets Everyone deeper. has a, a cool older figure. I'm just saying that I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, <laughs> look, man, if you like Kiss, I mean, look, it's all good. I just, for me, I mean, I was in the South. They had makeup on. That was like, you know, it was, it was some devil shit. All right, you, all right, all right. Listen, 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 listen. I'm going to tell you something. Was, I'm going to tell you something. Real, though. That's pretty much Crit, Kiss and Twisted Sister. All that shit all was the same well, thing. No, but no, see, but you're missing the 70s and the 80s. I know you were born a little bit after me. But I'm saying a lot of that, it after me. It all me. fell in the same category, like white men with paint on. Nah, I'm okay. That shit reminded me of It from Stephen King. I just, nah, man. It's going I'm well. I'm good with all that shit. I, no, or, I'm just... 
Like when yeah, you sound like you like them pretty good. We already (laughs) established the reason I have the show is because my sponge memory for stupid details. Okay, okay. Like even Alan asking Alan questions, I don't want to know about like, does he still have the poster with the Sex Machine lyrics on it? I want to know what James Brown's rider was in 1973. What was James Brown's rider in 1973? Yo, I've I've heard crazy rider stories from various groups. I think. See, that came I, later. We didn't have riders. Huh? What did we didn't have anything about Do you know the contracts that we have were like one page? Literally. And it was just like pay us or I nothing. I'll show you one. <laughs> it's literally, it was just like, yeah, this is this is the date. This is the time and place. So it we're never gonna, occurred to you guys the number one touring attraction for black music in America, probably second to the Motortown Review, which I guess lost steam after 62 or 65, 66. It never occurred to you guys once to like, hey, maybe we can have. No, because he brought everything. These donuts. No, he brought everything. everything. Anything he wanted, he brought with him. Okay. And I mean, his dressing room was full of stuff. But he paid for it. But he, he would just bring it, it was because there was the promoters didn't do that. I'll, I'll give you give you an example. Teddy Powell. I don't know if you know who that was. He was a, a major, major black music promoter. Based in Newark, but he promoted all over the Northeast. Mm-hmm. And he took tours out. He took single dates. He played gospel shows. He played jazz festivals. He played R&B tours. And whenever we played Newark, we'd always play for Teddy. He was, you know, our promoter in, in Newark. And he would occasionally buy dates and put them in other cities, too. Um, Teddy had a Marvin Gaye tour shortly after What's Going On broke. Mm-hmm. And Marvin had a rider. And this was when I was in Pittsburgh, and I went. I went to the show to, to basically to see Teddy and hang out and talk shop. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Home." He called everybody home. He was just a real old school kind of, you know, rough promoter. Mm-hmm. Always had a suit and a tie on, but it was always wrinkled, <laughs> you know, that guy. Okay. And he's like, "Home." I gotta tell you, been promoting shows for twenty years. Now I'm a rug merchant. You know this guy, Marvin Gaye? I mean, I know he's got a big hit, but it says he wants carpeting in the dressing room. We're in an <laughs> arena. Arenas don't have carpeting in the dressing room. But I got him. Wow. He so- laid out newspaper uh-uh. and taped it to the floor. <laughs> <laughs> you can't make this up. I saw it. And that was his way of saying, get the hell out of here with your rider. Wow. <laughs> okay? Really? Yeah. So, it, so it, no one took it, it seriously until like, Van Halen with yeah, the it, brown it, M&Ms. It, it, it took a minute before the artist had the juice to make those kind of demands of promoters. The whole balance of the relationship. Back in those days, the promoter was God. This is the guy that paid you. You worked for him. I, I guess... You asked how I got the Kiss gig. I yeah. got it out of a, a classified ad in Variety. They took an ad out. They took an ad. They were being managed by a business manager. Their 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 longtime manager, Bill Coin, they had parted ways. So their managers were a couple of guys who were really accountants, Glickman mm-hmm. and Marks. Howard Glickman, I forget. Right over here. Howard Glickman. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Go. So you know all about it. Um, and they were not really rock and roll guys. Um, long and short of it is, yeah, they put an ad. They needed a, 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 a road manager because they had a tour manager. 
but they needed somebody to handle all the travel and the logistics because the tour manager was too good to do that stuff. It was that kind of a thing. And I was looking for a way to get back into business. And as I said, the business had changed a lot. It was on the verge of turning from a low tech to a you know, mom and pop business mm -hmm. into something that wasn't quite high tech yet, but it was on the way. It was changing. Mm -hmm. It was definitely corporatized and particularly with KISS because they were a corporation and ran things that way. But long and short of it is, I guess, the only way they knew to do it because who would ever think to put an ad in Variety for a, a rock and roll road manager? I mean, it was insane, but it was like... Were they saying it's for KISS or no, was it just no, like... No, no, no. In fact, it was, an, it was an employment agency that placed the ad on their behalf. Wow. I mean, a place like I went to apply for this job with no idea of who the group was. And it was the kind of employment agency where there's like 20 people taking typing tests to go to work wow. as clerical people in, in offices. I mean, like manpower. Yeah, it, like. exactly. Oh, wow, manpower. <laughs> I mean, it was like insane. Wait, and, what's manpower? Ah, oh, man. Manpower is You don't is know what manpower is? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's well, where people who eat dinty more go to find it, jobs. No, there you go. No, it that really is. So is. It really is. Yeah, manpower Boom. was like, if that's where you went, if you... Uh, you know, you didn't have like no no kind of degree or nothing like, like that. Like Job Corps? It's not quite, it's like manpower and then Job Corps is like the bottom of the. Like fill a job. Bottom. Remember fill a job? Yeah, but at least you get in the office and manpower. Yeah, job manpower, you get office. Yeah. yeah, Job Corps, they send you like third world countries. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> how do you know this? That's Peace Corps. Oh, it's Peace. No, I think it's Job Corps. Anything with Corps on it. Whatever. Anything Moving with core on. on it is not yeah, good. Yeah, it's bad. No, green core, <laughs> peace core. Yeah, job all the core. All the core. That's it's a lot like of gardens well, and Ray projects. Well, rhymed about job core, so <laughs> I knew it was bad instantly. So, <laughs> but no, I knew about. I used to work. I had a I had a temp job. I could, uh, before. Uh, <laughs> What'd you do? Uh, <laughs> I had a couple of. Them. He managed I, Kiss. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know nah, I had a. Uh, I worked in a call center. I used to call. Uh, oh, oh, me too. I used to nice. call people for the government. Oh. For the who? For the government. Oh, okay. Well, you want they, they wanted their money back or nah, it was like some kind of survey that they wanted to do. It was some bullshit. But I would just call and fuck around. That's why you have a good speaking voice on radio. Hey man. I, I started in the call center and then after that I went to work for Blue Cross. Ah, word. Okay. Another call Great center. Time. The things you learn. That shit sucked. <laughs> oh, never mind then. Forget it. it was... All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. 
When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. So what 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 was your your experience with Kiss? Like what what was the difference between Matt and James Brown? I I know that I would assume that you could say that James <laughs> Brown was high maintenance. So what was the difference? The difference was James Brown I always raced to see the show. With Kiss the gig was get back to the hotel. I didn't have to see the show. I mean, I saw it once. I was impressed. It was cool. But I would think that you Big would have fan. to Huge always fan. just be there to hold hands. No, because or... they, they, they had a tour manager. And as long that it was way more important. I mean, they were a well-oiled machine. They, they had the right kind of security, the right kind of tour manager. They just needed to know that there'd be the right fruit salad in the room when they got back to the hotel. Can you tell a fruit salad story real quick? So, well, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was like... He's literally telling the truth. It's like the that, that that was the most important thing was there had to be a fruit salad for Gene. They all had a, 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 a idea, a menu for what they wanted in their rooms. And I'm talking it should be in the room when they walk in. The, the, the makeup is dripping and the suits are still on and so on, but the food has to be there, proper temperature, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which is fine if you're in at Ritz-Carlton, but if you're in a Holiday Inn in Dubuque, Iowa, where the kitchen closed at 10, Forget it. So that's how I got out of having to watch the shows because I would actually take the limo after I dropped them at the show. Once the show went up, I'd take one of the cars and go shopping and fruit. actually find a supermarket and make the fruit salad because – and the reason was there was like about the third or fourth show out. Um, I get a call from Gene right after they got in the room, walked them up, met him in the lobby, walked them up, to, led them to their rooms. Go back to my room, and about five minutes later, phone rings. Come to my room. Okay. Come to this room. This is a fruit salad? And it means all of a sudden, this rock and roll star, in makeup, still got the uniform on, and he sounds like Jackie Mason. He's like, you call this a fruit salad? Sort of like Rodney Dangerfield and, yeah. Jackie Mason had and, a and he picks baby. up a piece, and I mean, it was like about four slices of orange and like two slices of pineapple and something. This oh, is what this holiday and called a fruit salad, right? Need some mango, some kiwi. He's like, this is not a fruit salad. This is shit. <laughs> this is what I pay you for. So it was like, okay, I got it. I'm gonna make the fruit salad. So for the next, you know, the rest of the tour, I made the fruit salad. So you're trying to tell me that dealing with Kiss was no. It's a totally no, was different no game. Van Halen. Like, wait, I'm like fruit salad. What about the the women and the groupies and the uh, like? 
were they beyond that now? Now it's just like, all right, I'm off stage. Where's no Gene was still seeing both Diane Ross and Cher, so he was juggling. What them. say what? That's right, 1981. He was right. he was Diana Ross and Cher. Yeah, yeah. And um, how long did that last for? Um, one tour. It was like three months, two months, three months, something like that. So when it was over, you thought you were coming home. I thought I was coming home. They shared a production manager with Prince. Prince was out on the 1999 tour. And the production manager caught me in catering at like the second to last gig on the Kiss Run. Like a typical conversation. What are you doing? You go home. I don't know. I'm going home. Wait for the phone to ring. And, um, and he says, well, you interested in the Prince gig? Because he just let somebody go. And that was like the second or third tour manager he'd had on that particular tour. And I was like, of, of course I'm interested. Nobody pays me to go home. Yes, I'm interested. Now, the reality was I had already fallen in love with Prince. It was very obvious this guy's going places. And it was a show I'd enjoy seeing every night. Now, I had no idea what the gig was going to be like. I'd heard he's difficult, a little crazy. But, you know, I didn't really know much. I didn't know anybody in the camp. So I really went in there blind. Did that worry you that he already went through two or three during one tour? No, no. There was only a month left on his tour, and it was either that or go home and sit on my butt until the phone rang. And I loved his music. Well, so to me, it was it was it was terrific. It was like an opportunity to get in a camp that 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 had a future. But I meant worry, as in, like I would think, like when someone changes their cell phone number twice in a year. I'm already thinking. Are you selling drugs? <laughs> <laughs> like I question someone that changes their self, like their life, and okay, what what life decisions have you made that brought you here? Right, right, right. It's like the Spinal Tap, like the whole joke of like you went through like eight drummers. This is our ninth drummer. Right. You know what I mean? So I would figure to go through a couple tour managers in such a short period of time that this person is difficult. Yeah, that was in the back of my. But head. is it that you, once you dealt with James Brown, yeah, you felt you can handle anything? Maybe that was it. I mean, you know, was that in the back of my mind? Sure it was. And as I began, because I didn't know anybody on the tour except the production manager. And um, and he had warned me the first thing he said. And the first thing Farnoli said when he hired me was, don't approach Prince until he's comfortable with you. He'll let you know. He'll send you a sign. Somehow he'll let you know when he's ready to communicate with you. And, like the and that second, was normal sounding to you? Right. No, of course not. <laughs> but I was working for him. It was his house. And it's like, so I don't have to put up with the, the, the artist in my ear giving me instructions all the time? Great. Can't mess up something I'm not told to do. <laughs> but <laughs> someone has to be your your information person. All right, so so the first week I was out there, and, and I mean, I went up to him. He shook my hand the first night. Welcome aboard, something like that. That was all we talked about. Um third or fourth day, I needed to talk to him about picking hotels. And traditionally, I would go to an artist and say, here's where we're going. Do you have a favorite hotel in these cities? So as to make sure that they were booked where they would want to be. And being new in the camp, it sounded like a logical question. So I came up to the dressing room before a show one night, and I talked to Big Chick, said, I need to see Prince. Well, buddy, I don't know if that's a smart thing to do. I'm still new blood, so everybody's like patronizing me. And he says, well, here's the thing. What do you want to talk to him about? Now, Chick called himself looking out for me. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking he's blocking me, right? Because I still don't get the dynamics of the personality. You know, I'm new in camp. 
And he says, well, and, and I said, well, and you just talk to him about a few hotels for the next, next few weeks. Buddy, here's the thing. <laughs> he hired you because you know what you're doing. And if you ask him about hotels, he's going to think you don't know what you're doing. And why did he hire you? So you knew that logic was out the window. Right. And so it was up to you to guess what his preferences. Yeah, were. so I went to Bobby Z and I went to Farnoli and I said, where do you guys stay? <laughs> you know, it's like, like, okay, he doesn't want to talk about hotels. Now, so maybe, what, maybe a week into me being there after four, five, six shows, whatever, we're in St. Louis and we're in a hotel after the show. I'm in a lobby bar with, with the whole band, I think, was there. All five of them, probably. So they hung out? Occasionally. Occasionally. And, we, you know, it's one of those deals where you're in a boring hotel, and it's after hours, and you're leaving first thing in the morning, so you're not going to go out in the street. And everybody just met, hey, I'll meet you in the bar, we'll have a drink, right, just to unwind after a show. So we're sitting in a huge round table. And the band is, you know, had a couple drinks and it's kind of lively conversation and so on and so on. And suddenly we look up and here comes Prince and Chick walking across the lobby towards us. And what fascinated me was the conversation stopped. There was a tension at the table you could feel. Really? And I'm like, dang, now all of a sudden everybody's scared to talk. Because they, they, whatever it is they're saying, they don't want him to hear it because what I didn't realize is that he has a way of taking what you say out of context, twisting it around to mean something else and so on. So their whole thing was, let's just don't say anything unless we're asked. Now, I'm from New York. I don't know from that. It's like, it's, <laughs> I'll say anything. <laughs> Pick what you want, you know. Um, so as, as luck would have it, the only empty chair at the table was next to me. So Chicken Prince head for that side of the table, and I get up to offer my seat to Chick, figuring Prince will take the empty seat, and Chick kind of physically pushes me back in the seat, <laughs> and, which was the right thing to do. He's the bodyguard, but I'm being polite because I'm the newbie, right? Right. So we're sitting at the table, and now it's like awkwardly quiet, and everybody's waiting for him to say something because now the boss is here. And, you know, they were talking about how the show was and so on, but, but maybe he didn't like the show, so they're afraid to express anything. They want to read him first. Did he like the show or did he not? Is he here to pick us up? Read about, his mood. Did yeah. we miss a cue? Did, did they want to read his mood, right? So there's this awkward silence for about 60 seconds, and then he just turns to me in my ear and he says, tell me some James Brown stories. Wow. And... I don't know. I thought of something real quick. God only knows what I told him. I have no recollection at all. And from that point on, we talked. So that, that was, the, the, okay, you're in. You passed initiation. Really? And after that, I couldn't get him to shut up because now it is, the, <laughs> it is the guy calling the room every 10 minutes with get this, do that, get this, do that. Knowing what I think I know about him, I would have thought he was testing you to see would you spill any secrets? Like he was testing your loyalty. So the story you told must have been oh yeah, humorous enough to give just a little bit of information. Yeah, I'm but sure not it like, wasn't. No, oh, this is that one time when I, I caught James Brown uh, yeah, yeah, doing yeah, right, that. Right, right, right. <laughs> You're like, oh no, he's not our. No, guy. no, no dirty laundry. That, but that's that's tour manager one oh one. Is you don't you never diss a previous artist with the new artist because wow, you just don't. So when when you entered the 
the the the the realm of of the Prince tour. Um, what preparation of any that you were given? Like what's your? I I still don't know how you just jump in head first to an already existent situation. You know, you just dive in. You figure out what's been done, what hasn't been done. But the biggest thing in that situation, because I wasn't used to jumping in midstream, was just kind of observe. The whole thing was like, let me clock everybody and see how this works. Catch the dynamics of the personalities, who's outspoken, who's a problem, who's cool, who oversleeps. You know, just get a sense of, of what you're dealing with. Now, did you, have- you know you can't reinvent it. Right. You can't come in cold and, and reinvent the wheel because whatever they're doing, it's working. Did you have to, uh, to babysit all three acts or was it just Prince? And- Each act had a road manager, but... They're, they, they all answered to you? Or? Yeah, pretty much, because I was the one who was telling them what plane we're on and what, what hotel we're going to be at and so on. They didn't have a voice in that. What three acts are you talking about? Uh, Vanity Six and the Time is who I'm referring to. Um, so was it was it well-oiled even with those acts? Like, were they professional? Were they? Everybody was very professional. It was obvious that he didn't tolerate the bullshit, so it was a very professional operation. Now, still, there were a lot of opinionated people, and it was there was some. You had a real sense of drama, and obviously, it didn't take long to learn a lot of it had to do with um, what had happened with Jimmy Jam and Terry before I joined, mm-hmm. when they had broken away and missed the gig because they'd been in the studio in Atlanta and so on. For the listeners who don't know that story, yeah. Quick side note: so uh, Jimmy and Terry uh, flew to Atlanta to produce. Just be good to me, right? Mm-hmm. And then a ounce of a drop of snow came in the land and, and shut the airport down, uh, thus forcing, uh, I guess, uh, Brown Mark and Lisa and Prince to fill in uh, the 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 Times music. Oh, backstage. Were you witness to that? No, no. It was before. It was before. It was okay. before. Okay. So by that, I mean by that by that point though I mean could you? What I was, mean the bands weren't speaking. There, there, first of all, there was a musical rivalry between the bands because the time could kick their ass and often did. They being the revolution. I don't understand that. Musically, though. you mean that, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, because but Prince did he not have his? Well, it was thing he designed that. already. He designed that. He wanted that. Well, I know that, but when I hear like, oh, the time kicked our ass tonight, like I. I think it was like the Frankenstein monster that kind of went beyond his control. Like, I think it was, I think the time was him just kind of getting his funk nut off. Like, ah, I'll just do this kind of funk shit. But, you know, for a while, and I think even when we talked to Brown, Mark, and them. Right. <laughs> you know, they were saying that. I mean, because, you know, after a while, <laughs> the, the time was, I mean, that was like the black audience so you yeah know, they, they were I, I a little bit more accessible a, it, i think it was a stylistic thing as much as anything else because the nature of the songs the repertoire was was different it was more r&b yeah it was hardcore r&b when yeah. you get when you I mean you can't fuck with a 10 minute vamp on cool right. little red corvette is 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 oh, yeah. it's a tremendous song mm-hmm. right he but right. It, it ain't gonna do to a house what 10 minutes of cool does right Right. Or 777. I mean, I get it. So, uh, I mean, they were just at, at best cordial to each other by that point. At or, best. 
And then there was the Vanity Six thing where he'd already been, you know, been through the Vanity thing. They had already broken up, but he was trying to make people think he was still in there. And they would hang together, but she was making everybody aware that it was just a hang, that she was really done with him. And Susan Moonsey's still his, like, sometime friend, but she's not sleeping with him either. Right. And Jill Jones is there, and, it, I mean, it was it was crazy. <laughs> I, that just levels of awesome juggling that one day, Fontaine, you and I will discuss. Life goals. <laughs> Man, life goals. Life juggling. Man. Uh, <laughs> that's time so, consuming. Yeah, I guess by the point you by the time you joined the tour, did, did the did the fabled uh, purple notebook ever show itself? I mean, how much talk of we might do a movie or this sort of thing? Well, I heard that. I heard that because some of the guys in the band were talking about it. Jill Jones was talking about it. I remember Vanity and Susan Moonsey telling me, you know, he's writing in this notebook these ideas. He thinks he's going to make a movie. And everybody kind of like, the sense I got was that nobody really believed it, but everybody was too afraid of him to express it. So everybody acted like, yeah, we're going to make a movie. But, you know, but like, they didn't believe it. (laughs) At what point did it become like, Oh, crap, this really is going to happen. Um, about a month after I was in Minneapolis and we started doing casting calls. Well, uh, but uh, the, the one thing that I noticed when Elise were searching the, the, the notes of the music that went into Purple Rain was that he was on a serious deadline because once the movie got greenlit, mm-hmm. songs still weren't finalized yet. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, when I'm reading the the Warner Brothers logs, the Warner Brothers uh, studio logs of how songs got created and how fast and close to deadline that they were, you know, like the beautiful ones really wasn't created until like mere months before they had to shoot the stuff. Once I think "Take Me with You" came like during. Well, that's my point, yeah. and the fact that I mean, I. It's easy to take for granted that his his talents were endless and, and metaphoric metaphorically speaking, he was just shooting three pointers all day the with his eyes pe- closed. The film people worried about that, but we didn't because we. Just, I mean, we by then I knew what everybody else in the camp knew that this was a guy who would go downstairs and in six hours create a new song. And at that point in his career, the songs he was creating were consistently good. Um, I I think. It, it didn't take long once shooting began to realize, A, that nobody in this cast was going to threaten Meryl Streep or George C. Scott. <laughs> what were those preparations but, like? Uh, did you witness, like, these ballet oh, classes? Oh, yeah, yeah. When, when I first got to Minneapolis, as Farnoli said, you're an off-road road... Because I said, what's the gig? You're an off-road road manager with three bands. Why wouldn't Farnoli come in to do the legwork? Like, because he lived in L.A. and and he didn't want to live in Minneapolis. <laughs> uh, Leeds, get Leeds to yeah, do it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but this is this was kind of the Gopher stuff. It's like we had an acting coach who had come come in, been hired from California to come in and work individually with the people who had the most speaking roles. Mm-hmm. 
we had a dance class down, downtown that was just basically just basic dance and, and as much a workout as anything else. But So it's just to keep them in shape, not... Exactly, exactly. Like, was the and 1992 then, tour making them lazy and like... Uh, no, but I just... Uh, just figured, You're putting on the pounds, just, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and and then there was the um, the rehearsals, and and you had Vanity Six, you had the Time, and you had uh, the Revolution, and they were all rehearsing. So it was my job to stagger their schedules, to make sure everybody knew where to go and when. The dance classes were like three times a week downtown at the Minnesota Dance Theater. Three times a week downtown. Yeah, and it would be like in late morning so that we could have the day, you know, the day for rehearsing. And um, everybody would go to that together. So that would be all the groups together. And anybody else who wanted to. So 19 to. people. It was your job to wrangle 19 people. Yeah, pretty much. Morris included. And yeah, absolutely. Man. Absolutely. And then Gwen and I would go, and Gwen would get in tights and work out with Susan Moonsey, and they would just all <laughs> hang out. And silly, And Jerome would clown and, and drive the dance teacher crazy. It was hysterical. <laughs> I mean, How we should have had footage of that. The, the, the dance theater stuff was a riot. Prince included? Sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. I'd say half the time he was there. So, I mean, was it easy at all for you to make this move, or was it like... No, it was pretty traumatic, actually. Because it was like leaving a girlfriend, leaving New York, neither of which I wanted to leave. Um, to live in a town I had no designs of staying in. And, and, but, but it was like, it was like, this is the offer you can't refuse. And, and, and I was, I really played hard to get with Farnoli when he called me because it was like, you know, because he could tell I ain't feeling Minneapolis, man. I mean, how long am I going to be there? He said, well, maybe forever. I was like, no. <laughs> well, you were lucky enough to pull Gwen into the circle. Yeah. I can't imagine that was like, part of the pulling deal, my really. girl into like, okay, well, I tried that once. Like, uh, how did it end? We broke up at the end of the... It ended. <laughs> the yeah. But wait, that's pimp what you just said, Alan. You said that was a part of the deal. Like, it's either both of us or... It, it was part of the deal at a certain point because after I was here for a while and I realized this was a keeper meeting the gig, I was really concerned about our relationship because the relationship had just gotten to the point where this is, like, getting serious. Mm -hmm. And... Um, but, you know, she had a, a good job in New York. She was public relations director for the Hayden Planetarium at the Museum of Natural History, yeah. had been there for several years. All her friends were in New York. She'd never lived anywhere else except when she went away to school. And so the idea of her moving just didn't even seem worth having a conversation about. Never occurred to me. But something happened at the planetarium. They had a change in management, and the new regime was, was not to her liking, so she was starting to job hunt. So fate just said that if she was ever going to consider a move, this was the time. And um, my thing was that eventually we would tour, which is what I live for. Mm -hmm. If I had wanted to be in the movie-making business, I would have moved to L.A. and got in that business. This was just something we were doing until we got to the next tour. That, that's what got me excited, was hitting the road and making music. Right. Making a movie was tedious to me. It was just boring. And plus, you didn't know whether or not it was going to work or not. No, but, but I knew with or without the success of the movie, one day he's going to tour again. He's got a band, he makes new music, and he's popular. We're going to go out on the road and do what we do. And at that point, 
I don't want to be away from home for six months. So the thing with Gwen was like, once she came, well, she, she came to visit, and then the job situation for her turned into something that became unpleasant because the management changed. And she was like, you know what? And I miss you too. Maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. So lo and behold, she was willing to move. So at that point, I was like, okay, if we're going to tour, she's going to become my assistant. And it, it, and it kind of morphed organically because there was no Paisley Park. There was no office. Mm -hmm. And so kind of by default, my apartment living room became the office. That's where guys would come to pick up their per diems and, you know, and packages would come that I'd have to take to print at rehearsal. So it, 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 it was kind of the, the headquarters for PRN Productions until we finally had an office a year later. Um, so needless to say, Prince got used to calling me, got used to Gwen answering the phone, and very gradually he started asking her to do stuff for him. <laughs> oh, so he, he had a vision to see before. Yeah. So he was like, and I don't know if he was testing her or what, but he was like, you know, did, did, did a package come for me? Well, I think so, but Alan's at the store. Well, I need the package. Can you bring it out to the house? You know, and, you know or, or at, at one in the morning it was like, you know, I'm in St. Paul and I ran out of gas. Can somebody bring me some gas? To oh, wow. Warm it up. He would do that. He would do that a lot. Really? Yeah. I, I got it probably half a dozen times that he would call the house and say I ran out of gas and we'd have to go get gas. Or we'd call somebody who was already out, either his brother Dwayne, or we'd find somebody. I mean, it wasn't like it had to be me. But, you know, somebody got to bring me some gas. And in an era without cell phones, I can't even imagine. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's crazy. Yeah, it that's was crazy. crazy. But, but he, he got used to Gwen doing stuff, so it, it just became like, okay. And then, then um, fans had discovered his house, the Purple House. And whenever he and I would go to New York or go to L.A. for meetings or business or just to get away for a few days, he was getting nervous about leaving the house empty. So there were a few times he asked Gwen to house sit for him when we'd be out of town and so on. So, so Was it a gated house? or Yeah, there was an electronic gate and so on. And in fact, once there were some fans out there and she accidentally opened the gate and had a heart attack because they came in. Oh, but, they came, oh. but that's a Gwen story. Okay. Um, but, but long and short of it is she just became part of the family. I mean, it was, you know, uh, she became very friendly with Susan Muncy particularly because Muncy didn't drink the Kool-Aid. She was more like... A, a very grounded person, mm -hmm. which appealed to Gwen because she was totally baffled by the whole rock and roll thing. She was, she was from the, the planetarium from the museum world right. where every postage stamp counted, mm -hmm. and you know now it's like rock and roll. It's like hey, send something counter to counter, which was before FedEx, um, and she just couldn't get with the. The sense of entitlement and the, the, the waste and you know, the excess of our lifestyle. So it, it was it was a little bumpy for us, but you know she adapted pretty quick, and and um, and he accepted her. Well, I'm I'm just amazed at. Can you describe the the, I guess the the work ethic is what I'm really trying to grasp because I've I've never seen anyone who is up at the crack. Or, I mean, what time did rehearsals normally start? Mm. 
as a rule, like like three ish, two, three o'clock in the afternoon. Really? Yeah. Okay. So, and, and, and when did they end though? Totally varied, depended whether it was just a rehearsal, rehearsal, or if it was something specific. And the closer you get to that specific gig or tour, then the rehearsals might go to midnight, one or two in the morning. But the average day, because I mean, he'd rehearse all. Everybody's on retainer. So he would rehearse constantly, even if there wasn't a tour around the corner. And those rehearsals might be... I mean, if he went to the studio and recorded a new song, he'd want to rehearse it with the band so they'd learn it, even before the record ever came out, without even knowing whether the song would make an album. So we were always rehearsing. And those, just for the lack of a better way of putting it, those kind of everyday rehearsals without a serious purpose would maybe 3 o'clock till 8 o'clock at night or something like that, five, six hours. So not as intense as... No, but then if it's if it's a tour three weeks away, then they get really, really focused and longer. But the thing was, the rehearsal might last three or four or five hours, but then he'd want to jam all night. <laughs> oh, after the rehearsal? After the rehearsal. Once he'd done whatever he wanted to rehearse... Let's then it was like, okay, around. then he'd like all of a sudden start playing Body Heat and vamp on it for like an hour. Were they generally enjoying it or was it like no. one of them was like, yo, man, I made plans to. Yeah, there were those times, but they they knew better than to make plans. You just didn't dare make plans. But I'm certain someone gave you like the eyes like, yo, man. Yeah, of course. It's my kid's birthday. Yeah. Like that sort of. But none of that mattered. No, it, it, was, it was all about him indulging his... That's what retainers are for. You're on call, baby, 24-7. In fact, let's play First Avenue tonight at midnight. Get out of bed and come downtown. What, what was the most 11th hour request you've ever had to make happen in, in your history uh, of, of this organization? The video for... Alphabet Street. Alphabet Street. I knew it. I knew it. Really? <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> yeah. That was a, oh, God, this might not happen. Or No, it was a phone call on a Sunday morning in a snowstorm. But, I mean, it's Minneapolis, so that's... No, but it's still a Sunday morning, and he it was no advance notice whatsoever. It was literally like 10, 10 11 o'clock Sunday morning, phone rings. I want to see the video. Okay. When? Now? Wait, time out. Was there even like a hello? Hello's Alan there? No, very seldom. Just hello? I want to shoot a video. Yeah, like, he'd just go right into it. He'd never say hello. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he, used to, he used to drive Gwen crazy because he'd never say hello to her. And like when she would answer the phone, Alan there? <laughs> Not is Alan, just two words. Alan there? Mm, that would. <laughs> He said, ooh, and like, the, yeah, and she did what you would probably do. She said, oh, hi, Prince. How are you? You know, just. Hey, Prince. Just, how are you? Hello. Exactly. Wait, were just, y'all allowed to call? Even. Yeah, I can't, I, I can't yeah, imagine him. I, I can't imagine calling him Prince. That was his name. Yeah. What else would you call? Mama name is Clay. I'm going to call him Clay. This shit. is long before all that other shit. Anyway. All right. Let's not, you know. Uh, so Alan, uh, I guess, can you tell us at at the time when you're taking this, uh, tour on the road, 
like at what point does this become like Beatlemania? As soon as we got to Detroit, the first show. What is it about Detroit? Like he was it the fact that Electrifying Mojo just yeah, I think had so. the city think, on fire for him more than any. I mean, other that wasn't DJ around then, but I think it was one of the first cities where he really blew up. And for whatever reason, it just worked. And Billy Sparks and, is also and, from Detroit, and, and, correct? Billy Sparks is from Detroit, but but when you really think back, Detroit, Motown aside, Detroit, when you think of P Funk, um, and the fact that the early Funkadelic came out of Detroit, mm-hmm. there was always kind of a, a a unique merger of of funk and rock there that wasn't necessarily elsewhere. Okay. And maybe that speaks to it. I'm I'm just guessing here. I always wanted to know, how did Billy Sparks get his position in Purple Rain? Like, was he just always... Billy Sparks is a promoter by trade. And And an actual... actual He he worked with Quentin Perry and Jeff Sharp, who were our tour promoters. Okay. And had been with Prince since the Controversy Tour, so it was before my time even. And continued to be the tour promoters. And... um, Billy's Billy's gig was that he did all their radio, and he was like their publicist. He was their promo guy, okay. who would go to all the radio stations and hype the shows. But I mean, obviously, there was something personal about Billy that Prince yeah, took Prince a liking took, to. Prince took a liking to him. I mean, he had a he, he was Billy's a character. He's got a really um, outgoing personality and a real flavor to him, and um, a great good sense of humor. The perm and. <laughs> but enough to say, I'm going to put you in my movie. And yeah, but he, I mean, this is a guy. Oh, you just everything. thought that was natural? Like, oh, yeah, we'll put Bill. Dude, he put me in the movie. Why wouldn't he put <laughs> Billy Sparks in the movie? He put everybody in the movie. Yeah, by the way, Alan, it, uh, for those that don't know, Alan. No, but the point is, the kid. point is about me. It's about he put everybody in the movie. It was like, you know, that was his, that was his thing. We're so going to rule minutes, the world. Was, Everybody's going to be part of this. His dream was we'd all live in a gated community out in Chanhassen mm, and wow. build Paisley Park. Park. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, when we have kids, we'll have a nursery center inside Paisley. Oh, so we never oh. have to mix with... It was real Howard Hughes shit. Prince was like, no, it's more like Dr. York. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so shit. Dr. York, Bill. No, I'm just joking. No, that's no, no. That's a whole no, other. No, yeah. That's with its own soundtrack. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you're just saying it was very natural for Billy Sparks to just. Yeah. It was like it's part of the gang. That's the Purple Crew. Oh. Yeah. The Purple Gang. At at the at at the at the height of that tour, um, I mean, did you think that it was over? Was, I mean, what kept you on? Because he stopped touring for two years, but yet you were still there, correct? Yeah. Um. You were just there on standby in case? No, because by that point, whatever he did, I was part of it, even if it was just to, for the hang. I was just part of whenever he traveled, I'd go with him. And it was, it was, I mean, there was a valet, there was a chef, and there was me. And I was like the road manager. And even if it wasn't a tour, I was still managing his moves in, in and out to hotels and clubs and whatever. Okay. So it was just, you know, there was just that point in time where whenever he moved, I moved with him. So were you just told and, that? And, and understand something, too. All this time from the day I got to Minnesota, what it really, really was, 
was as much as anything was I was like the liaison between Prince and the management because his management, Cavallo, Ruffalo, and Farnoli were based in L.A. Okay. They did not want to move to, El- to Minneapolis. If they had, I would have never had a gig. So you were the silent member of, of, of that firm and right. you right. decided to live in Minnesota. I see. I see. Um, so at what point are you just told that you're the president of Paisley Park or? No, it's just it's like, hey, we got the money. We're going to build the building, you know, and. Um, now, do, do, OK, as as a Prince fanatic. And I was his guy. I mean, I was the guy on site. I mean, there was Farnoli, right. who I answered to, and Cavallo and Ruffalo to a degree. But um, but in terms of on-site, I mean, now there were a lot of other guys by then. By the time we built Paisley, there, it was a pretty big crew of technicians and engineers. And um, we hired a, a studio. The, the, the guy who actually ran Paisley, the facility, the studio manager, the building manager, mm-hmm. was a guy named Harry Grossman who had run Maurice White's complex in West Hollywood, we hired him away. As, as, a, as a music observer, I always notice that whenever someone chooses to upgrade, that also marks the beginning of the dun, 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 moment, like kind of the beginning of the, not the beginning of the end, but it's like, Barry Gordy taking Motown out of Detroit and going to L.A. Uh, Wu-Tang uh, leaving the the Riz's basement yeah. to a more posh Hollywood studio. Uh, I mean, there's other examples of, you know, cleaner studios and that sort of stuff. And then it loses its, its, its Hunger, appeal. Yeah. Did you feel, I mean, not saying that mm-hmm. you could answer from, I wouldn't call you a Prince fan, but I would at least think that you admired some of his music. Big time. Did you necessarily feel like this might be a jinx situation where, like, and you know, all this magic is coming out of the warehouse in this particular studio? Not a jinx situation. Um, I think would I, I, I know where you're going with this, but I, I look at it a little differently, but maybe with the same result. I'm... My brother always accuses me. He says, "You, how come you always like every artist's early work the best? Mm-hmm. And I do tend to. Um, and I think it's because there's a, there's a sense of adventure when an artist is developing, when an artist is growing and learning as he, he or she goes along and, and uh, discovering new things to their skill set that they didn't even know they had necessarily. And you're going to get that in their early work. Now, that doesn't mean it's their best work. But just the way my DNA is, that's what appeals to me the most. Okay. And the more you're established, the more you've defined yourself, then it's starting to get to the point where you can become derivative or, 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 or just repetitive. Because you pretty much have done what you have to do, and now it's just about how can I do this differently. But you've kind of learned what you're going to learn. There's just a point where you hit a ceiling as 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 an artist, and you I don't want to say run out of ideas, but 
you know, you, you you're gonna you're gonna do another adore. It's just gonna have a different name. It it might be even as good. But she's all that. I'm sorry. We had to say that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Have you heard this song? I have not heard She's All That. Have you heard this uh, She's All That, Alan? That's not fair. <laughs> Wait a minute. Have you heard it? Yeah. Of course Of course he's heard it. Okay. That was during it was during your reign. Are you allowed to say what you thought of it or You should probably tell them who it is first. Okay. Well, I don't know. Y'all gonna play it or something? No, we can't. No. And even if even if we could, I don't think I I don't think we would. Is it that bad or is it nasty? Well, there was a point where uh okay, so when Carmen Electra Oh, Oh, you can stop right there. Okay. (laughs) We can stop right there. All right. Quest Love Supreme, only on Pandora. (laughs) We're with Alan Leeds, ladies and gentlemen. No. Um yeah, so he uh well, With first, Carmen Electra, first, first off, you should probably tell the significance of the song "Adore." Well, you tell me. Well, it's like the fan favorite Prince song. Like, really? What's your favorite Prince ballad? See, yeah. that's the thing. That's it's the thing. Adore. No, that's it's the adore. It's adore. No, it's adore. Trust me. Nah, no, but it's... what's your favorite? Forget what anybody else thinks. What's the most popular? What's the best? What's your favorite? Adore. Sensational. <laughs> that's a close second. When we're dancing close and slow. Here's the thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna be real honest with you. I technically have been very much indifferent to Prince slow songs. Uh-uh. No, no, no. You gotta pick. Don't do that. No, no, no. No, no. Like, I don't know. I I'd skip these shits. I You move for beautiful ones. It moves you. When I gotta join, then I'm like, all right, I'll put some Prince things on it. But I don't like like look. I acknowledge I acknowledge that "Do Me Baby" is probably his best. See, that's mine. Vocal performance. Yeah, but it's like really hearing a ten minute song of Prince having sex is not my go to thing. So I, I think that's generational. I think that's that's your generation of of no of, no. I'm I'm alone in this. Who feel uncomfortable embracing a ballad? Yeah. Unless you got a woman under your arm, yeah, and it's, I can it's respect. Like, you know, teach, teach the babies, like, Alan. Tell them the young boy. It's, what it's okay to like a ballad. Oh, I'm a baby now. No, no, I'm saying I just never like slow songs. I just had a flashback to the end of Graffiti Bridge. You're sorry. <laughs> the kid won yeah, with the ballad. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you get also- a pass. But my point was there. There was a point in his career. Oh wait, I can't where believe when you that- heard his ballads. They just sounded like, okay, this is the new version of Do Me Baby oh. or right. Adore. Exactly. And it's like, Scandal, this might be a dynamite ballad if I never heard the other ones. Right. <laughs> so but wait. if I heard Scandal is first, that's the joint. I like Condition of the Heart, but I don't consider that a ballad. No, that's a great song. The narrative. The All point right. being, there's a point where you've defined yourself as an artist. Mm-hmm. And, and you can't help but be repetitive because it's what you do now. You, you've kind of stopped learning and growing. And yeah, you may, you may find a new way to mix it or you may tinker with the instrumentation and approach it. You know, it's, you know, different ways to do things, but you're basically still doing the same thing you've already done. Wait, to, to, And that's what I knew was eventually going to happen, but it would have happened with or without Paisley Park because it happens to every artist. Well, to explain to our listeners, uh, the, the sort of uh, taboo, blasphemous thing that Prince did... In terms of Carmen Electra, and and some sort of 
Ted Turner colorization way was he took his much loved the door ballot and gave it to Carmen to rap over uh, a uh, song called All That. Sorry, I'm, sorry. I'm all that. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was a bad uh, idea. Well, su- suffice it to say, God burst his soul. He was a little confused with the advent of hip hop. Oh. And hip hop's um, crossover into mainstream acceptance just, at best, bewildered him. Were you around for his hammer observations? Because yeah. I, I think more than Run DMC and Public Enemy, I feel like a lot something. of Diamonds and Pearls was derivative of the hammer reaction. Thunder was definitely. Uh, I, like sexy motherfucker. I'm, I'm definitely that. I, 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 got one I right. can't think of a, of a particular song, but there's a conversation that we had alone in Studio A, and I don't recall how we got on the subject, but I'll never forget what he said. He held up a copy of Billboard's Hot 100, mm-hmm. and Hammer and Vanilla Ice both had hits at the time, huge hits. It's a dark period. And he pointed to the chart and he said, do you know what it feels like to spend your whole life learning a craft and look at this and see Hammer and Vanilla Ice who cannot sing and cannot play an instrument and I can't get in the top 20? Wow. He didn't get it. And I would say, okay, Fuck Hammer, fuck, fuck Vanilla Ice. What up with Public Enemy? Right. Well, that's good politics, but it ain't. It ain't. They can't sing or they can't sing or play. You know, I, I don't think he really respected the art of sampling and mixing. He I mean, just, but he wasn't mad at those prey checks either. Was no, he? of course. Well, no, of course it's not. So like eleven million. I'm, I'm, but right. but it it certainly influenced, as you said. You know, there was a point where you can't beat him, join him. Because there was a point where he looked up and realized that, you know, this is a guy who throughout the, the bulk of the 80s was the, he was the leader. He was the guy who was building the new, the new he was setting the new trends. Right. You know, he was at the forefront. The, he, he was cutting edge. Everything he was doing was what everybody was biting. Now, all of a sudden, it's not his day anymore. There's new kids on the block. Bad, bad pun. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, all of a sudden it's something else. And it's something he doesn't do. And something that he doesn't, I mean, look, I know the brother grew up in North Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, North Minneapolis is to Minneapolis, it's the hood. But it ain't like growing up in the Bronx in the 70s. When we moved to Minneapolis and saw the hood, the first thing we thought was like, damn, projects look like a holiday inn. (laughs) (laughs) Everything is relative, okay? Right. Dude did not understand hip-hop culture. Okay. He may or may not have liked a given record, but the culture didn't relate to him. Blackness aside, it wasn't where he came from. He grew up in Minneapolis. You know what I wish? Not Brooklyn. You know what I wish, though? I wish someone was there to actually just explain to him. He was actually hip hop and didn't even know it. Like he, that's the fun. The funniest thing was that he didn't even know he was showing the blueprint. Because in my mind, all he did was provide the blueprint. Because everything he did from 
his work on drum machines. That to me was mm-hmm. hip hop. Mm-hmm. Uh, Irresistible bitch. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not even talking about the times where he just rapped a song. Like even when well, I was, that was like '83. So no, no, I know, but even then, I didn't think like, oh, Prince can rap. I was just like, Prince sometimes just spoke shit, and but <laughs> but I meant his attitude was. But more, those were his castoffs in his head. Those are just the silly little songs we have fun with. They're not the serious work, right? But even then, like everything he did from his. Uh, the the stories that he would concoct in early interviews to I mean his exploitation of our fair scared exotic women (laughs) (laughs) that's that's your definition of hip hop which is very broad but his is much narrower hip hop to him only meant two things you didn't play and you didn't sing but you still made records but to me he was more hip hop when he wasn't Trying to rap, so yeah, I agree. I agree, yeah, and, and, and I mean, I, the, I the, the, the proof in the pudding is that when he, you know, when when he suddenly realized that not maybe not suddenly, but gradually realized that that he was no longer at the cutting edge of things and had to reconcile proof. that, yeah. then all of a sudden he's he's singing into a microphone shaped like a gun. And he's got somebody spitting rhymes in his band. And the guys who were trying to get him into hip-hop were actually the wrong guys because they weren't prime examples of that culture. Right. I mean, you know, they were people who rapped for a living or tried to, but, yeah. you know, it wasn't Chuck. <laughs> but weren't him and Michael Jackson going through it, it seemed like, at well, the same Tariq. time? Sorry? And I said it felt like Michael Jackson and him were going through that at the same time. At some point, they both must have felt that's that way. Because they both were artists in yeah, a whole but I mean, well, I think Michael Jackson Michael adapted everybody in the way industry felt Prince that did. way. He adapted, though. <laughs> he adapted way better than Prince did. Michael Jackson worked with like actual rappers, and we got the Gold Nigga album from Prince. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Michael White was kind of But I, I, think, I think the important <laughs> thing is Michael never tried to be somebody he wasn't. And when mm. Prince was singing into a mic shaped like a gun and having a rapper in the band who isn't good, that's trying to be something you're not and this is only, so was, was there oh, i'm sorry no, and this is only like a few short years after the song dead on it where he basically calls yeah. out rappers yeah so yeah. was there a general feeling of relief when the batman soundtrack sold like seven eight million units or was it just like was it like whew, okay the lights are still on or was it well i don't i mean nobody was nobody was feeling doom um, well, okay, well, okay. I, I mean, don't don't misunderstand me. Diamonds and Pearls was a huge selling record. I know that. So did he feel vindicated? And, and, you know, Love Sexy was a flop by his standards, but there's a lot of artists would have loved to have those sales. I mean, every, everything is relative. It wasn't like he was, you know, he just was no longer at the forefront of things because the world had caught up and people were listening to different things. They got used to him. So There's a point where no matter how good you are, people get used to. You're only new once. I would like to ask you about your take, or at least what you can indulge, on the Japan run, which for many Prince fans know that was like the the last hurrah of the revolution. Um, how Not how easy was it to... And what year was this, just this is 86. I believe this is 86. Um so I guess the legend is that once Wendy and uh, Bobby saw Prince smash his cloud guitars. Twice, actually. Um, when you watch, the, have you seen the clip? 
So there's he's doing the Purple Rain solo, and then he just looks, and then he just takes the cloud guitar and stamps it to the ground, marches off stage. But what's so funny is that the staff is so efficient. I know he wanted to be like the one and done, like, ah, this is done, and I'm walking off stage. But then the 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 guitar tech had another one ready for him, <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, "Ah, man, you killed you, my moment. You just <laughs> you, you ruined the momentum. Now I gotta go back." So then he came out, did another solo, and then he smashed that one too. And this time, really marched off stage. And you know, Wendy was like, "Oh God, I knew that was the beginning of the end." I mean, you've been there for a lot of, I guess, awkward, silent car rides home um did you think did you know if you had a future after that you know after that moment where you figured he was going to disband the group or i didn't take it as seriously as they did um oh so even if you didn't have a future you'd just be like oh on to the next and well i thought i had a future because i figured somebody's gonna play with him okay you know i wasn't there the band didn't hire me he did okay so so that didn't I didn't for a minute think that that would affect me. Um, I had a different idea about the thing because there was by that time there was a lot of tension in the band for whatever reason, mm-hmm. and I'd, I'd been around the you know everybody in that band this was their first real taste of anything major. They'd all come from bar bands, and all they knew was this. And it was almost a disservice to their careers to blow up to the mammoth proportion that they did because it's deceptive. It's like the real world isn't like Purple Rain. But that's their reference point. Wow. And I had been through so many artists and so many bands. I'd been through James Brown going from Maceo to Bootsy and, you know, all of those kinds of transitions. And I was fully aware of the fact that there's only one name on the marquee that sells the tickets. And that as long as the new band is good, Prince is going to be all right. Now, people are going to sentimentally miss the old band and do to this day for good reason. Yeah. But I never for a minute thought it wasn't going to be all right. Um, but isn't the I, whole starting over again? And No, because, getting... because his music was growing. And the, the irony is, is that Wendy and Lisa had so much to do with opening him up to new music. But so did Eric, and so did Sheila. In their own ways, had brought him to things that he hadn't heard before. And the point here is not who did it, but that his palate had had grown so tremendously that five pieces wasn't going to handle it. I.e., here comes Eric, and he says, get a trumpet player so we can do parts. counter-revolution movement and now it becomes the counter-revolution um but the 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 real point being that that he just his what he heard was so much bigger than what purple rain was in in terms of just from a musical standpoint and i think he saw those five pieces as a limitation and it has nothing to do with the quality of musicianship or the personalities or anything. Um, it, it was just time for a change. And he wanted some new blood, and he wanted a bigger group, and an opportunity to explore different kinds of music. And I think, too, something else I picked up from James Brown was that when you bring new people into the band, it reinvigorates you. Because 
when you feel you've gone as far as you can with the people around you, the only way to keep from being derivative is to freshen up the people around you. And James did that all the time, particularly with drummers. He may not change his whole band, but he went through drummers like crazy, and every one of them had a very identifiably different style. Jabbo, Clyde. Mm-hmm. I see. You're right. So you were president of Paisley Park till when? Well, I was, technically, I was vice president of Paisley Park Records. I was. I was the president. He was. Oh. Uh, um, <laughs> obvious. I forgot that one. I, I took over the label in January of '89. So was it a real label like Warner's respected no. you guys and they wanted to. Uh. And up until I took it over, really, there was no Paisley Park Records. It was an imprint. I mean, it existed on paper, mm-hmm. but nobody ran it. You know, Cavallo, Ruffalo and Farnoli were supposedly running it. But I mean, if you wanted to call Paisley Park Records, there was no number to call. You would call Cavallo, Ruffalo Management and maybe they'd have time to talk about it. But it wasn't their focus because they ran a management company with a lot of clients. So it was just a vanity label in their eyes to him. And I think they initially really wanted it to turn into something the way Maverick did um, in the sense that one of these artists will catch on. Yeah, because he was a guy who had been able to produce Manic Monday, Sheila E., The Time, Vanity Six. This was a guy who could write and produce good records for people. And they expected he would do that in-house. When did you realize, like, maybe perhaps you should make your exit then? What, 91, 92? Or? Yeah, it ended up being 92, May of 92. Um, just, it's just one day you wake up and realize you've been in the same place too long. And you're just not. But you never left Minnesota, Minnesota though. Like you... No, but I'd say place, I'm talking about a career position. Um, I don't mean geographically. Mm-hmm. Um, Was it. Quasi amicable, I mean, at least at the yeah. time. I mean, he actually hired me back for a couple of one-off projects. I came back a year later to put together a Japanese tour for him. Um, I didn't do the tour, but I assembled a crew and dealt with the promoter and worked on all the contracts and the riders and so on. Right. Um, and um, then I came back to do the liner notes for the Hits project. So we, we spoke. I mean, we were cool. It was just that he had the, – the Paisley Park label was, was a no-win. It was a joint venture with Warners, meaning that it was owned 50-50 and funded by Warners. Okay. Um, but his contract was up, and he wanted – he was in the midst of renegotiating his own contract. And there were a lot of things about those negotiations that I wasn't – keen on we we just didn't see eye to eye on certain things from a business standpoint it wasn't you know as, as much as anything else but um he he was convinced that the failure at paisley park and i've never met an artist who would say anything different was because warners didn't prioritize the product and I knew for a fact because as 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 the head of the label, I was spending better part of a week to 10 days out of each month working out of Warners and Burbank and very close with Mo Austin, Lenny Warnick, or Benny Medina, the whole gang. Mm-hmm. And I knew what they were willing to do if we had the product they wanted. And it just wasn't there. They expected him to make cutting-edge records or at least contemporary radio-worthy records. 
And not that all the records were bad. We made some good records. We made a couple of great jazz albums with my brother, mm-hmm. um, one of which actually did very well on the jazz charts. Things Left Unsaid was a top 10 jazz album that year, but jazz albums were selling 20,000 units at best. Right. Um, we had George Clinton record that was one of the least interesting George Clinton records. It was old stuff that he had recorded for another label. The deal had fallen apart and Prince did it as a favor. Um, and the idea of signing George was that they would work together. Never happened. I mean, Prince gave him a couple of tracks, but wait, none of that never really happened. Moment, none of that. It was one song, and no. it was the worst song in the album. Yeah, exactly. what song was it? The big Pony. pump. No, it was the big pump. <clears throat> Pumping uh. it with a big pump. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 That, that yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then he signed Mavis Staples, and that that was a good, solid, old school soul record. But it wasn't time for her to come back yet. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, she has. She's had right. a lot of success lately. I'm thrilled for that. Much deserved. The, the, the Mavis Staples records were good records, but there were no hits. There was nothing at all that was contemporary radio worthy. Not when hip hop was blowing up and. You know, that's those were the records we were doing, and Warner's was just like, "Come on, guys, we love Mavis and George, but there's a reason they don't have deals." <laughs> Cold. They're not selling records. Wow. Now I'm depressed. All right, y'all. You know what season it is? Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I always brag about you have a you have this artifact in your house um, 
on this cassette, you have what, what my opinion is some of the the greatest recorded moments in answer machine history, uh, of which these these notable music gods are leaving you messages, but it's, but you still get a, a, a inkling of an idea of what the the, the time was like. Like I, I guess with James Brown's message, it's. Because he left a few messages, I get the feeling that was like one of the first times that James Brown was dealing with a modern a- answering machine. <laughs> so <laughs> that was one of the, you know, like the 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 news guy doesn't know he's on the air yet. Like, yeah, right. wait, wait now, okay. Oh, oh, hey guys, hi, this is from Channel Six News. Like, that's how James Brown's message is. And then, like, next comes, uh, uh, I guess Prince left you a message about you know, uh, leaving a piano for my father to play in his but it sounded like that grasshopper uh kung fu voice yes i don't i don't know if he mentioned 17 days or he i think he mentioned one of his singles that was iconic i I don't know i've only heard it once and then then george clinton calls and talks about you know i might sign the paisley parker that sort of thing and then like it's just it it goes through throughout history, and you you get to see the scope of, you know, of of what Alan's life is like. You know, you know this even D'Angelo calls like what had happened was, and then <laughs> <laughs> there's one that's missing that I never that somehow I erased and never never transferred. What? And that was Miles. Oh wow! And it was tell that little purple motherfucker to call me. <laughs> well, yeah, I have to say and I that. had it for about a month. I saved it, and then one day it was gone. Oh, and I was oh like, damn! Oh, well, I know that. Uh, I mean, even though you made a life and soul, I know for a fact that you are a jazz fanatic. I mean, if anything, I, I think that y- you would have loved to. How come you never pursued? I know that your love for weather report kind of surpasses at least in my eyes any any music that you've worked with like i know that your fandom for the, for that particular unit how come you'd never uh, i don't know about surpasses but it's certainly well i know you love some other report. yeah big time big time and miles so how come you never and probably the number one is eddie Palmieri. wow um so at no point figure. did you think like i want to manage these guys and um, just wasn't my world, and they didn't. Um, but I figured if you can conquer the. They pop didn't have well paid tour managers. Yeah. There you go. I was about <laughs> to say. Yeah. Never mind. The gigs weren't there. Oh, okay. Said jazz was twenty thousand. Right? Yeah, I'm about to say yeah, they ain't talking about twenty thousand. Um, so when you made your exit, did I mean? Do you ever fear? I mean, I guess the life of a tour manager is like you're only as stable monetarily, at least as the act that you're with until you get to your next uh i feel like it's almost like a trapeze thing like you might catch uh you might catch the you know the the the, the bar of the the trapeze line or you could just yeah. fall into the the pit i mean there were there were phases in my career where for just simple economic reasons i was concerned about what's next and fearing the fact that i might have to take a gig i didn't like or worse yet just go through a year without gigs because sometimes the phone didn't ring. But, you know, it was very blessed because it was 10 solid years with Prince, 
with a paycheck every week. So that's not a typical tour manager situation. It was five, five and a half solid years with James Brown, except for the three weeks I got fired because I was sick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, with a paycheck every week. So that was not a typical tour manager's thing. Now, the rest of the time, it's been kind of freelance, except once I got back with D'Angelo, now as his co-manager, of course, that's an entirely different relationship. And it's, you know, it's about management contracts and so on, which is a whole different um, kind of uh, compensation situation. But, you know, there were times, but I've, I've just been really, really blessed because it's 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 like like the prince thing i mean i had become a huge just just to, to make a long story short i didn't get into prince until controversy mm-hmm. and um, um before i'd met my wife gwen and was dating a girl in pittsburgh who worked at a radio station that said i got front row tickets to the controversy show prince and come on let's go because she worked for the station and they were promoting it so on and so on and literally front row center and I'm like, I don't want to see that shit. I like the record, but, you know, I want to see some little guy in bikinis. What am mm-hmm. I going to? Miniature Chippendales? Okay. You know, it's <laughs> like I had absolutely no interest. But, you know, new girlfriend, so I went. Right. And I walked out of there like, yo, I got to work for this guy someday. And it wasn't just the music. It was the whole package. The lighting was dope. The PA was dope. Everything about his thing was was like, was like, gold standard and i'm like you could see this is this is the real deal and obviously an amazing performer um and i didn't know a soul with that outfit and i was out of the business and a year later i'm working for kiss and lo and behold the production manager says hey you want to go to prince okay you know um and kind of D'Angelo happened to, I mean, I met Chris Rock because he came to a Prince show. He came to Love Sexy. This was even before SNL. And he was with Nelson George brought him to the show and we hung out after. And it was like that kind of like, hey, man, one day I'm going to be big and I want you to run my shows. Like, if you run this, I want you to run my shows. That's no, how you got to. Literally. And it's like, yeah, well, okay, was, was Chris Rock next after your Prince stint? No, 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 no. But I'm saying that's how I met him. Okay. And, and you know, we kind of stayed in touch, ran into each other once or twice a year. He'd come to Minneapolis, play a comedy club and call me. And once he blew up, then it's now it's been five Chris Rock tours. Um, and the Maxwell thing happened. Somebody, a, a, a friend of mine who worked for Sony, gave me the first CD. Um, the Urban Hang Suite before it came out said, this is a kid from New York. You think it's right up your alley. You're probably going to like this. Just gave it to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, shit, this is kind of dope. I'm driving around the lake one day playing it in the car, and Gwen says, what's that? And I'm like, there's some kid from New York, Maxwell. She's, oh, my God, I haven't heard anything that fresh in years. So on and so on. My wife has real old R&B ears. Mm-hmm. It, so it went for, for her, it's from Luther Vandross to Maxwell. That was the evolution. Okay. But I'm like, okay, if she loves it, this is, this is going to work. And like three months later, I get a call from an agent who says, I got a new kid who's going out, and he's kind of difficult, so I thought of you. And I don't know if that was a compliment or not, but, you know, it's the rep I got after Prince and James Brown and so on. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be Maxwell. And that's the record I'd been in love with for three months. So I do several Maxwell tours. Brown Sugar comes out. I fall in love with that. Um, I'm a D'Angelo fan. Saw him once or twice 
on shows that I was with other artists. Didn't know him, never met him. Mm -hmm. um, wasn't that impressed with the show I saw because he was a guy in the trench coat sitting at a piano. He didn't really work the stage yet. This is Brown Sugar era. So cats in trench coats and <laughs> yeah, soul right, music. Right, right. That's what's missing. But at least he had pants on. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, but, um, but I finished a Maxwell tour. I don't remember which ones. It's the third or fourth Maxwell tour. And I'm in New York at a meeting, finishing up the accounting with the business manager planning to fly home in the morning. I've been on the road for three or four months. And I'm walking across the lobby of my hotel, and my cell phone rings, and it's like, Mr. Leeds, my name is D'Angelo, and I've heard about you, and so on, and so on, and so on. And I, I thought it was Maxwell playing a prank, honest to God. Right. So I'm like, yeah, right, Max, get out of here, because I just left him at this meeting. We'd been on the road for three months. Right, he's so testing I, your loyalty. Yeah, he's playing, he's playing, <laughs> playing with me. So, right. so I'm like, yeah, right, Max, you can't, you can't get me, and I hung the phone up. And two minutes later, it rings again. It's like, seriously, this is D'Angelo, and um, you know, I'd like to see if you could fly into New York to have a meeting. And you guys were working on the last month or so of Voodoo at the time. Right. And um, I stayed over. I said, well, I happen to be in New York. I canceled my flight, went to meet with him and Dom, God bless his soul, um, the next day. And that was 15 years ago. What was hilarious was that we didn't... I think I told him the night before that you were going to come to like one of the rehearsals. I don't know. I don't know what you were. I recall that you came to SIR to watch us do something. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was the very beginning of the tour or whatever. We were just starting to rehearse the tour. But I remember, I remember the night before, like D and I were like rehearsing our lines. Like, okay, we don't want to freak him out. So maybe we shouldn't ask that many uh, Prince well, questions and Chase Rao <laughs> questions. <laughs> so we're just like we're, we're going to play it real cool when he comes in. Like don't, don't let's not geek out. And I think that lasted all for like five minutes. In the, right. So you, you guys know. were like the anti Prince back then. Where he, no, we no, were. When when Prince and Alan first started talking, he was like, "Tell me some James Brown stories." Yeah, we were like, "Tell us some Prince stories." Right. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I was going to say, like, if, if, I mean, what drives you now? Like, what's your, what's your passion? What's Same your... thing that always did to music. I'm still a kid who's a fan of the music. And that's the blessing is that every other tour manager I know may have started out that way mm -hmm. and then got jaded because they had to take that gig they didn't want or the artist they were in love with turned out to be a jerk. And, um, you know, or they had too many months off between tours and couldn't pay the bills. Right. And all that passion for this this life of, of traveling and meeting interesting people and going interesting places and doing interesting things comes to a halt. And, you know, but my first wife once said, you know, what are you going to come home and get a real job? And I'm like, I think it's real money paying the bills isn't it <laughs> you know i don't know what you call a real job but you know i'm i'm one of the few people on the planet that's blessed enough to actually enjoy what i'm doing to get and, and get paid for it but i love the music and i guess you know, at the end of the day i mean people ask at, at this age what in the world are you doing on the road because my knees hurt when i get in the bunk on a tour bus this is not fun anymore but 
when the lights go down and people scream and the vanguard hits the fuck out of here i get paid for this wow that's all you can say i guess wait before before we 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 wrap up i just personally want to know i mean out of i mean you've seen a lot of historical things in your years as a manager tour manager you know do you think you can actually um come up with like a top three historical moments like i was there when blah 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 was conceived or you know that time when prince of michael jackson you know whatever like what do you have a personal top three like reflection i was actually there when this happened well sex machine so you mentioned the poster with the lyrics on it in nashville which was the first recording session he did with the new band that was bootsy and his brother phelps and those guys um which kind of reinvented his brand of funk and opened things up so did you feel as though James Brown was about to be played out by that point or something? It was played out. The records weren't selling the way they had. I can't. But in 1969, I'm still thinking like Mother Popcorn. So yeah, but, you're yeah, saying but, that to younger see, kids, see, Mother see, Popcorn wasn't? No, Mother Popcorn was a huge hit. But we were living in the era of the, still living in the era of the single. And you were only as good as your last single. And after Mother Popcorn came Funky Drummer, which is legendary, but you couldn't give the record away. It didn't sell. So um, James Brown's one flop in his whole... No, it wasn't his one flop. Well, his streak between the 65, 75 streak. And Let a Man Come In, which was a nice record, but it wasn't a real hit. Really? No. I mean, it did okay, but it wasn't like a number one record. Uh, Brother Rap, that was another one. It did okay, but it wasn't a number one record. But Sex Machine was hot. Sex Machine was like all of a sudden people are calling, kids are bugging out, the, the, the attendance at the shows picked up, and the fact that we had a new band and it had gone through the, 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 the bad press that came when Macy and him left, and Marvel Whitney had quit and did an interview dissing James, so the press had been really, really negative, and all of a sudden we got this new band with these new kids and this fresh hit, and it was like in a period of three or four months we had gone downhill and come back up, so that was cool. That, that was pretty major. I think Payback, because there again, he was cold. He'd had several records that, you know, you might consider worthy, but weren't huge hits. And Payback was a huge hit. And um, and didn't sound like the other ones. Okay. And then obviously Purple Rain. I mean, that, that's just the, the premiere of that. Just a movie and, or just... just- you know the premiere and the idea that the, the the reviews and the box office the opening week that like my god we're really really part of something that's gonna be huge that's amazing there's there's a story about the purple rain uh premiere that you tell a, a lot that i don't think uh, i don't think all of our listeners have heard about um you guys being in the limo no. approaching the, the theater can you tell that story yeah, we we had a procession of limos going to the premiere. The premiere was at the Man's Groundman's Chinese Theater in L.A. Hollywood Boulevard. And, you know, big red carpet affair. MTV was out front and everybody else was out front. And, you know, 
Um, a lot of celebs invited. Weirdo. Typical, yeah, right. Peter. Typical L.A. rock and roll movie premiere. Um, and we had a, a, we were staying in Westwood at what was then called the Westwood Marquee. I think it's a W now. And um, we had limos for the band. Wendy and Lisa were in one. I guess Bobby and Fink were probably in another. I don't. I forget how we were divided up. But we had several limos. And I was in the car. It was just me, Prince, and Chick. Chick was in the front. I was in the back with Prince. As we came out of the hotel, he grabbed a flower from the garden in front of the hotel. There was just a little garden in front of the hotel, but along the curb, grabbed flowers, and he was holding them in the car all the way. Now, this is, again, before cell phones and high-tech stuff, so we had walkie-talkies, and we had security already at the theater. They were going to orchestrate how the cars pulled up in what sequence and so on and so on. And as we got within about five or six blocks of the theater, one of our security guys radioed uh, Big Chick and to, and started telling them how crazy the scene was. Like, man, you won't believe this. There's thousands of kids in the street. The police are going crazy trying to control the crowd. This is just the biggest thing I've ever seen. It's madness, so on and so on and so on. And, and Prince overheard. We were in the backseat kind of overheard some of it. And... All of a sudden, his voice kind of broke, and he said, Chick, what did they say? And Chick repeated it to him, and I looked at his face, and it was the deer in the headlights. It was like all of this preparation, the whole ordeal of making the movie, of making the album, of of doing the preview shows that we did at First Avenue and so on, all of that had led up to this moment, this whole fantasy that nobody believed would happen but him, or at least he claimed he believed it would happen. Mm -hmm. And for a split second, he really lost it, and he grabbed my hand and he said, what did he say? Say it again. I mean, just, just really lost it. And it lasted for about, his hand was shaken, and it lasted for about 10, 15 seconds. And then all of a sudden, he stiffened up. He got his game face back on. And from then on, it was typical Prince. And I don't think he ever so he was broke human. Again. He was but human for totally broke 15 seconds? For like 15 <laughs> seconds. And that was the only time he ever did that in front of you? or In front of me. Wow. That's amazing. Did, um, did you have a human nah, moment? And I sat next to him at the premiere of Graffiti Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. All right, just for light, you. Come on, man. Give me some. Like? Give and me that something. that was a case what was where, that? What was where, where, where he got up and left before the lights came up. Oh, oh no. Is it a one scene? At, or Okay. Oh, Do you love this film, Laya? I, no, I mean, but we it, it was the birth of Tevin Campbell, so, you know, <laughs> it, it has a special place in my heart. Really? For all five minutes he was on yeah, screen. Right. And yeah. Ingrid, Sh- 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 Ingrid Chavez. Thank you. See, I was close. Ingrid Chavez. She was pretty. Uh, whatever she was. I actually liked her album, too. One I don't know what any of them were. My wife was pretty. She ain't in the movie. <laughs> Touche. Damn. <laughs> well, uh... <laughs> I ain't got nothing to say about that. Alan, I, I, I know that, uh, you know, doing all this emotional, mushy stuff is... You, you, you can't stand it. And, uh... I appreciate the fact that you let us pick your brain. If you um, got a second, let me put one postscript on the last thing we talked about, momentous moments. Yes. This is something I want to share in 
and it's embarrassing to share it to you. I wish it were talking to somebody else because it looks like I'm trying to butter you up. But um, <laughs> Who, me? once we were in a car coming from a show and Chris Rock, I don't know where, he said, yo, what was the best tour you were ever on? And he was like, you know, James Brown, Prince, Prince, and I'm sure he was fishing for a Prince story because, you know, Chris is this. You well know he's a Princeophile like the rest of us. Yeah. And I, you would think I'd stop and think about it, but before I could even think, I, it, it just came out as if I were programmed voodoo. Well, I knew you. Wow. Really? Wow. Just came out. Wow. I wouldn't even, even think to ask you that question I didn't, to I get that answer. I didn't think about it. I didn't think of it. And once it came out, I was like, yeah, he's right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and why? What made that the best? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm talking to him. Did I'm you see it? Alan. That's what Chris said because he was he was stunned and 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 I'm stunned and and the only thing I could say to him was did you see it and he said no I missed it when it played town I was out of town and I missed it damn it and I said then I can't tell you the biggest disgrace in my whole career is that we didn't professionally shoot that show that there isn't a professional shoot of that show I mean there's bootlegs of the Brazilian shows but you weren't there and we didn't have the set they don't count it was an awesome. Yeah, show. I gotta say that, uh, you know, I I think maybe I downplay it just to just to no, dude, it was the perfect show, the perfect material, the peace perfect harmony in my own own the backyard. Set list. <laughs> there was not. There was well, I hear that too. Um. Yeah. I. I yeah. I, I guess I could probably say that. Probably say that. Probably the most magical times of my drumming career came were were it was that tour. I don't know. It's like in our mind, I think that we just created the show hoping that one day, like, we get the pat on the back approval from the the, the Big Brother approval thing. And uh, it didn't happen, but we still went to that city, and I felt like... Who are you looking to get the pat on the back from? I don't think that was the best show, though. It was really? good. They were in Minneapolis, Fonte. Oh, okay. Was, oh, I missed the Minneapolis good. part. I was like, okay, I get it. <laughs> so you Wasn't thought that it? show was just okay? No, I, I. you know what? Your brother got on stage and... Yeah, he ruined Jock's life for about a month. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, I... I um, maybe, okay, maybe I was just caught up in the no, whole... No, it was a good one, but I think that was just the whole Prince Aura thing. That magic he, of it all. Yeah. I mean, because the thing was, it could have went either way, and sure. I felt like what I didn't, I I didn't want to. We could have slam dunked it, or we could have been like, uh, what's his name on the Orlando Magic that missed those four uh, free uh, throws that uh, Kenny Anderson, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or we could have Kenny Anderson and missed them <laughs> and and lost our our, our championship uh, goals. No, on the worst night that show was dope. Um, I mean. Yeah, just for the listener wise though, y'all, you and D eventually did get a, like a pat on the back. Maybe it wasn't for Voodoo, but like creatively, at some point, no, we always Prince had his. Like, we had his respect. Dope. Yeah, we had his okay. respect. Okay, tell, um, tell us who was in that band in the in the, the Voodoo tour band. Well, uh, miraculously, he got uh, probably the best thing about that tour was the fact that he got a lot of cats to just leave their day jobs. Much to the chagrin of of whatever situation they were in, so like 
Roy Hargrove uh, was part of the horn section. Uh, Pino Palladino, who, um, I mean, by that point, I mean, even before then, before 2000, I mean, he was severely in demand as a, a, a session bass player. Um, cats like, An- uh, about to say Anthony Anderson. <laughs> oh, wow. Right before he did Blackish. Right. <laughs> Anthony Anthony Hamilton. Uh, was Shelby J. Yes, Shelby J., James JK. Poiser, J.K. At one point, Bilal was... Uh, that was before. Uh, yeah. But um, didn't he get fired or something? The bang! Oh yeah. Bilal never got fired. I could have swore there was some somebody got fired. Bilal just thinks like, oh, I got fired. But oh, okay. No, he just got a record deal after that, and Uh. you know, I mean, there was a time lapse between the gig that Bilal was on. That was like ninety eight, ninety nine, the Essence Festival. You know, by the time we got Voodoo finished, it was a new millennium. So. But Spanky and uh, yeah, Spanky, Alfred Chalmers, and, and Jeffrey uh, Johnson. Jesus, yeah, I forgot about yeah. God rest his soul too, Jeffrey Johnson. Um. Oh well. Anyway, so Alan, I would like to thank you for coming. Give it up for Alan Weasley. Yes! Story time. What a great. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Thank you. I I I I, I appreciate you coming. Um. I guess it's a fruit salad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
All right, so we're about to wrap up. We've learned a lot. Uh, Fontigolo. Man, what, I think, what did you learn today, bro? What did I learn? I think the most interesting thing I learned just from listening to Alan talk is um, how similar the business of, you know, yesterday or yesteryear, rather, is very similar to the business now in that it's very much singles driven. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's not really a, a thing of, you know, it's not really about the album per se. Um, when you talk about James, we put out a single every three months. That's pretty much what all the, the guys yeah. are doing now, particularly in, in like hip hop. And, you know, it's cats just kind of putting out. Well, you know, just singles. That's just what's kind of that. Doing that it. only tells me that we need. I mean, well, the Beatles changed all that once Sgt. Pepper's came out. Then it was like, ah, the album the can album, be the right. format. So I guess now, any day now, someone's going to release the album format that will make everyone believe in a bigger vision than just the the single. And movie. maybe they will do it only on Pandora. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, unpaid bill. Yeah. What, what did you learn today, bro? Two things. One, I could listen to Alan Leeds talk for fucking ever, man. It just came <laughs> like, it was amazing. And two, I, I, it was interesting to listen to a guy who has been going off his instincts, his, his love of music and what he likes and how that shaped his career is a pretty inspiring thing. Just like, this is the music he loved. And so he followed it and he continues to follow it. And I think as a person who dabbles in music, that that's a great thing. That's amazing. Dabbles. Yeah, there's very few people that get to make a living off of like what you love. You know what right. I mean? Like you have to sometimes just kind of do the shit you hate in order to make that rent. But and those people are in this room, which is also kind of cool to share that. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to make rent, man. Every damn day. Sugar Steve. What I found interesting about Alan was among among the the things that made him uniquely qualified to do what he did and to have the career that he had was, I, I think that. At all the different stages, I think you, you did what my father tells me to do, which is make yourself useful. So, like, in addition to doing your actual job of tour managing, you you did the publicity for James, and then you did the the uh, the imprint label you're running that for Prince. So you were doing making yourself, you know, worthy of a salary, you know, worthy of having a weekly paycheck rather than just the tour manager checks. You know, kept you employed, you know. Yeah. So I, I I thought that, you know, I was thinking about my father because he said, make yourself useful, you know. Jew wisdom. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> my dad told me that too. Your words, not mine. Laia. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so much. Uh, what did I learn? Well, I learned not to give up because, um, Alan, you have showed me that through your passion, you can live life in a joyous way, and that's my goal. I have also learned that, um, yeah, working with musicians is a doozy. I've also learned that I need to take a mirror in a corner and slow drag with him and to a nice Prince ballad because, yo, what is wrong with life? I'm just saying, all of that. I learned some more, too. Okay. So I ain't got that much time. Boss Bill, what'd you learn, bro? I learned that I'm too reliant on technology and I wouldn't have made it 40 years ago. Yeah. Word. Damn. I love technology, <laughs> not as much as you. You see, <laughs> <laughs> Napoleon, Napoleon Dynamite. And on that note, song. ladies and gentlemen, yeah. we will see you next Wednesday, one p.m. Specifically, yeah, at ten a.m. Pacific, specific, specific. Pacetti, ten a.m. Pacetti time. <laughs> 
This is Questlove Supreme on behalf of Fontigolo, on behalf of Boss Bill, Unpaid Bill, and uh, uh, Sugar Steve, and Laia. Do we have a proper moniker for her yet that doesn't make me seem misogynistic? Margaret. (laughs) 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 We're live. We'll see you then. Thank you. Voice Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.